flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million hours. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like. I wish, I wish, that every time we loving it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we loving it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish. And every time we love it, it feels just like this. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, coming at you after a brief hiatus. Apologies for not doing a Monday episode, but... I was tired, but I have lots of energy today, so let's cover all the things we haven't covered for the last week since we last joined each other here on The Debrief. That includes Monday's episode with Christian Parenti about why he believes the left should be on board with this new uh, church committee project that is being taken up by House Republicans. And of course, today's episode, which I thought was a really rip-roaring debate between Jed Sugarman, who of course is a law professor from Fordham Law School, who's been on the podcast before, um, arguing somewhat controversially in student debt uh, cancellation circles, the pro-student debt cancellation circles, that Biden's approach to this was doomed uh, for failure at the start, that the choice to use the uh, HEROES Act, which is an emergency act, post-9-11 act, and using the COVID hook as a justification for the executive authority was never going to fly, especially after Joe Biden started talking about how COVID was over around the same time that he finally committed to the student debt policy and that he should have used the HEROES Act and that it was basically an attempt at sabotage by the Biden administration. It turns out Judge Sugarman filed an amicus brief or a brief in support of the plaintiff's position uh, in this uh, lawsuit, meaning the people who are trying to... um Fort. This, but actually, I don't actually know about that. Let me let me think about that. But he's filed an amicus brief that ended up being cited by um, Justice Kavanaugh in the oral argument for the for his uh, concerns about uh, the expansion of executive authority, which is another thing that came up. Which is, you know, as the left, should we be concerned about cheering on an approach to um, executive orders that basically expands the power of the presidency 
is this going to come back and bite us in the tuchus one day when it's a Republican in charge? And of course, uh, Persis Yu, who is uh, just an amazing debt advocate, consumer attorney, one of the foremost authorities on student debt. I was just so impressed with her. Um, and you could hear at the end of the episode that Professor Sugarman was also impressed with her. Um, just it makes me I'm embarrassed that we're like basically the same age and she's a real lawyer. And I was just so admiring of her grasp of the subject matter. And I thought that the two of them together just really drew out all of the issues as well as they would be drawn out from just listening to the oral arguments pretty much. Um, and she offered a really interesting counterpoint to Professor Sugarman's arguments, saying that basically under even even if it is true that under the HEROES Act, the um sorry under the higher education act there would have been a better argument that there's still a really solid argument that, that the Biden administration is making under the um uh the, under the heroes act and it seemed like when you listen to the oral arguments you know a lot of the justices including at least one conservative justice had significant issues with the threshold question of standing which is did the people that bring bringing this lawsuit actually have the right to sue um, have enough like basically proximity to the actual harm to bring a lawsuit. And, you know, when you listen to the oral arguments, I, I think there's, you know, I understand Persis's perspective. I mean, on the merits, I would think that the, the Biden administration, that the Solicitor General should win this one. However, we are living in this deeply political world um, where these judges don't seem to have any issue making very partisan decisions. So then the question becomes, if that is the case, does it really matter whether they use the HEROES Act or the um, Higher Education Act if, you know, the conservative justices are going to do what conservative justices are going to do? But it's been a really interesting exercise. I, it made me for a half a second interested in law school and, like, I actually wanted to be a part of it. Um, but let's hear what you guys have to say. Nathan, you're up first. What's on your mind? Let's see. Can you hear me? I can hear you. You're a little faint, but maybe that's my fault. I'm, Let me try turning I'm, you up. I'm technically at work right now, so <laughs> I'm doing some cleaning stuff. So can, can you still hear me all right, even with the, uh, with the headphones, or do you want me to take them off? I, I can hear you. Shout out in the chat if you're struggling. I have a soundboard, so I just turned you up in my ears, but I'm seeing a lot of thumbs up. It looks like people are good, so shoot your shot. Okay, cool. So I'm not a lawyer. I've taken a handful of legal courses, so I, so I, don't, so I can't say about the, the which person is right. But all, all, all I'm going to say is that Sugarman, it seemed like he was like kind of in a no as given kind of mood <laughs> during the <laughs> interview. Where, where he just had, where he just didn't really care anymore, and he just wanted to see it get done, which I think is probably why he was willing to file the brief for the side of the plaintiffs, because he made the decision that it would be more beneficial to see it go down for the Heroes Act, on the chance that they would then choose the superior option from the legal mm -hmm. standpoint. At least that's my very simple non-legal analysis. But the, the, the broader point, though, that I want to make is that ever since, ever since Joe Biden prevented the rail workers from going on strike, mm -hmm. I've just kind of had this bad taste in my mouth. Like, I didn't support Biden to, to begin with. Mm -hmm. I didn't vote for him. I voted for Howie Hawkins mm -hmm. in, in Minnesota, quote, a swing state. And it ended up not mattering anyways, but... It could have mattered, theoretically. But the point is that I never supported Joe Biden. 
But after what happened with the railroad workers, East Palestine and the and transportation secretary, uh, what the Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg. Or, yeah, Buttigieg, mm-hmm. or, or, or or however his name is pronounced, I've seen it. I, I've seen it as many different ways as people that have said it. But anyways, and then now and then now you include what's happening at the Supreme Court. It seems to me that the argument for Joe Biden is over, that there is no argument to be made for continuing to support Joe Biden, even if you would acknowledge that Joe Biden is, quote, better than Donald Trump. It just seems mm-hmm. to me that, that that entire argument has gone up in flames, literally, after East Palestine. Mm. Look, I'm with you. I also uh, did not vote for Joe Biden. Um, so I have been on this bandwagon. <laughs> you know, the argument for, I mean, I wasn't in a swing state, so I, I appreciate that the stakes are different. Um, but I, I also felt as though the railroad um, strike break was a real tipping point for me. Mm-hmm. It was a It was a clarifying moment of how... You know, how little it felt like the establishment cared about even maintaining the veneer of a, a kind of worker alliance as a party. And moreover, how far the so-called progressives in the House and even the Senate or Bernie and, you know, Elizabeth Warren types were willing to go along and, you know, tacitly provide cover for all of this mm-hmm. by not speaking out against Joe Biden in that moment or, or, you know, literally voting to go along with it in, in other cases. And I, I don't know, like it's part of why I think that this conversation about other people getting in the democratic, you know, um, primary field are interesting. It's part of why I completely understand folks who want to pivot hard away from even thinking about electoral politics altogether because it does feel like like no one's coming. <laughs> like that's just that whole arena is a dead zone. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a part the reason I feel like I can't quite step away from it is that these the same way that that was a crystallizing moment for us in the same way that even before that something like maybe the Bernie 2016 campaign or something else that happened in your life was a crystallizing moment. There are still obviously so many millions of people who haven't had that moment yet. And seeing and understanding what opportunities exist within electoral politics that aren't taken by the people who are supposed to be fighting for us is galvanizing. It does wake people up. And that's what makes me want to keep following it and talking about it with the hopes that if you can point out enough times the Democratic Party forsakes its base, forsakes working people, then you can get more and more people doing what we've done, which is to take our votes elsewhere and recreate real leverage where we can either demand something from Democrats or genuinely put our efforts toward a, a successful alternative party. Yeah, I, I would agree with your analysis there, but I think just based on the information I've seen about Democrats in particular, they seem to have this kind of not – you could call it a mind virus. You could call it bad psychology or something. But there's just something awry with the, with the people who call themselves Democrats where I maybe feel like it's just not possible to actually break them out of the mold. The, the evidence that I would use is these are two polls that came out from, you know, mainstream pollsters just in, over the course of a week or two. 
where over half of Democrats want a different candidate in 2024, but 84% approve of Biden. And Mm -hmm. I look at that and I say, how can you, as a Democrat, say that you want, say that you want a different candidate, but that you approve of Joe Biden? What that that seems to imply to me Mm -hmm. is that they've rented out their brains permanently permanently and that they have basically closed themselves off like the people in the cave in the one uh the analogy you, you might know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. plato's, cave. Who, mm-hmm. plato's cave yeah the democrats are the people in plato's cave and in theory in theory you can bring them out of the cave but in practice most people never leave the cave well look i think that some of What's happening, at least in that poll that you're describing, is simply that people don't want Biden to run again because he's old. And it's not actually an ideological frustration with Biden. It's just that they're concerned about his health and his fitness, you know. And and that's how you get the gap between, I like him, I approve of him, but I don't think he should run again. But regardless, you know, even it, it it says something about the kind of, I don't know, the unresponsiveness of the party. Like, we're, we're wanting big things, right? We want transformational change. We want Medicare for all. We want wealth taxes. We want huge structural economic changes. Even if you're just a regular Dem who wants a guy who's a little bit younger. But there's a lot of people who feel that way. It's kind of wild that the party won't even be responsive to that. Like, I, I get the structural reasons why they're not responsive to us. It's, it's crazy that they feel so insulated from criticism or consequences that they'll ignore huge parts of the party who want a new candidate. They'll ignore, you know, the millions of people in the streets during 2020 and Biden's just going to go ahead and run for office talking about let's fund the police harder. There's nothing we can do. And I think that that's what was so, you know, galvanizing about the railroad strike. It's like, there's nothing we can do. There's no constituency large enough or powerful enough. There's no labor group organized enough. There's nothing, even, even the best that we've got, won't make them change their mind or move an inch. So what's the new plan? I mean, that's kind of a big black pill that you just gave me, so. Sorry, I thought you were already black pill, my friend. <laughs> I mean, I did got to come across that way, but that you, but you, you almost rivaled me on my worst days when it comes to the black pill, because uh, at least once a week, I consider moving to a foreign country, because I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, you know, it's just like this, it's just this, it's like, imagine East Palestine, but a whole country all the time. And then you have people like Governor DeWine being like, yeah, everything's fine. You can drink mm-hmm. the water, even though you can visibly see the empire collapsing around you. Um, and, 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 and I'm not going to go any further, lest I sound like Chris Hedges, but you know what I mean? Hey. No one, no one in this group is going to criticize you for sounding like Chris Hedges. Hedges, they'll get a round of applause, my friend. I suppose. <laughs> did 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 you have a chance to see or uh, to watch Chris Hedges' speech at the Rage Against the War Machine? I didn't. I'm behind on catching up with with uh, watching the actual remarks there. I, but I heard it was good. What did you think? The the speech. It's very sad. Mm. So when you when you watch it or listen to it. The, the next thing you want to the next thing you want to do after that is curl up in a ball and cry. <laughs> oh, uh, no. to, be, to be honest, but 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 when it's coming from Chris Hedges, it's kind of like the um, 
it's it's kind of like the emotional release moment in Greek tragedy mm. where it's really sad, but it's also good. It just but it feels good to just kind of get all that out there. So that's the. Didn't so didn't Richard Wolf say stuff. when he was on he made reference to Chris Hedges and said something about how the oh, my friend he's so depressed like did he say something like that? I think he might have said that. Yes, there were some other ones that were sort of like that. But mm-hmm. I think Chris Hedges has this weird effect where he, where yeah catharsis that's the um, that's the so someone mentioned that in the chat the catharsis he just has that catharsis thing and sometimes I just feel like that's what I need is some. Some, some yeah. good catharsis, like at the end of Medea, you know, where everything falls apart and that people are dying all over the place. But somehow you feel good, even though people are dying. But um, <laughs> All right. Well, I'll definitely take a listen to that. And I appreciate you calling in, Nathan. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is that there's uh, do you know the band Depeche Mode? Um, I'm fam- I'm familiar. And like, I know the name of the band. But yeah, I don't. Their songs kind of song. sort of, uh, they kind of a sort of ethereal. It's a mm-hmm. Depeche. Someone is saying Depeche. I don't know. Yeah, that's I, what I, I thought it was Depeche mode, but I was willing I've to never go with whatever he said because I've never it, said it out loud. I've only read it. But the point is their music has a sort of ethereal feel to it. Mm-hmm. Kind of with the same, same catharsis that you get when you listen to Chris Hedges. Mm. So I feel like at least one of their songs would be really good to put in the intro or sorry, the outro for one of your episodes, especially, right. especially one like Strange Love, for example, which is an interesting song, to say the least. All right. Thanks for the recommendation, Nathan. Yeah. All right. Take care. Good luck at work. Keep the faith. Yeah. You too. Bye. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. All right. Hopping around. Let's go to Christopher. What's on your mind, Christopher? Hey, Bree, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Okay, so I wanted to get your take on this. Um, ever since um, the student student debt cancellation has reached the um, Supreme Court, mm-hmm. I've kind of been fairly optimistic that they'll uphold it, only because of the backlash from Roe. I think that we forget that, like, they do, I mean... I, I spent a year in law school before I, I changed programs, and mm-hmm. it just seems like for me, con law, so much of it is political. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I mean, you're a constitutionalist until you're until you're not, until you want to reach your political like like until you want until you like want to like basically enact your worldview on the country. But I think that there is a like there are a couple of members of the conservative justices who do care about like, I think the public perception of the court. Mm -hmm. And I think that for these high profile cases, anyway, if they rule in a matter in which enough of the public thinks of this as a political body and not and not that a fair amount of public doesn't, but I think that right now, even after Roe, there is still a, an idea that I'm not going to say it's not partisan, but that it is it is trying to be fair in making these decisions. And I think that at least with Roberts and maybe ACB, I think that in the back of their heads, they they acknowledge that if they just go six to four on every high-profile case going forward, there is going to be a backlash. And I think, like, and when I bring this up, people think I'm crazy, but I think that, like, 
the biggest like immediate threat isn't like adding members to the core or term limits. It's just ignoring them entirely. Like I think that it's fairly plausible with the polarization that exists right now. And if the court, like I said, does six to four rulings going forward, that it won't be with Biden. He's not, he's just not that type of person, but there will be a president who will say, okay, fuck this. Like I'm, I'm going to command like the executive agencies to ignore whatever they say. And I think that at least Roberts is aware of that. So I don't think, I think you're right to say that Joe Biden isn't going to do shit. Joe Biden's not doing shit. Joe Biden is not the person who is going to pull an FDR and say, we're going to pack the court. If you don't start, uh, stop invalidating all of my legislation. FDR is the one who's going to take a stand in any way. Like it's not, it's not Biden. Um, I, and I think that we've di- seen a demonstrated willingness for the court to keep doing nine, you know, six, six, three decisions all day and night without feeling like any social pressure whatsoever. But what I, I think, what I thought you were going to say, and which I was maybe going to agree with, is that when you, when you referenced Roe, is that the, there was such a backlash to the court overturning Roe that it actually lost Republicans what was supposed to be a full sweep in both the House and the Senate. And that that has real political implications. Right. No, that too. I think that as well. But I think that. Oh, actually, continue with what you're saying. Sorry. No, you're fine. Well, no, I, I think that as well. And I think they're taking all of that into consideration. But I think that if it reaches the point to where they themselves, or at least they perceive themselves to be viewed as a political body, that becomes problematic. I mean, because like judicial review is not in the Constitution. That is something that a power they've given themselves and that mm-hmm. every in uh, that um, the legislative branch and the executive and the public, there's public buy-in to accepting that. But I, I do think it is plausible that if that ero- if that public trust, if you want to call it erodes, then there's nothing, I would argue there's nothing stopping a president to say, F you, I'm going to enact my agenda. Yeah, I, I agree. And people should go back and listen to the episode with Nico Bowie and um, Eric Siegel and Ilan Warren, where they were debating this issue. And Nico Bowie was the one that was really championing the idea of basically jettisoning judicial review. Um, and I, I agree that is possible and there's nothing stopping him. I just like there's just not a planet on which Joe Biden is going to take any of that seriously. Uh, but I, I agree with you that it's possible. But what I do think might seriously happen that has nothing to do with what Joe Biden does is that Republicans realize that they are not actually benefited. Like the cost of making the population really mad about not canceling student debt is too high and that they don't really care about. This is like a one off to, to Jed Sugarman's point. This is designed to be a one off. That's not going to be recurring the way it might under the uh, the uh, Higher Education Act. That they can bite this bullet, go ahead and cancel this, these measly ten thousand dollars for folks. Not that it doesn't; it's meaning, not meaningful. But I think half of all student borrowers are going to get all, their full debt cancellations under this policy. But that they can recover from this in a way they can't recover from, let's say, Democrats winning the you know getting a full sweep again, White House. Congress and being able to pass a more fulsome agenda, you know, and I think, I think that they might, they might, they could just take a knee on this one. I'm not saying I think it's likely. 
Um, but I was a little bit more optimistic about some of the questions that were being asked by Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh at some portions during the oral arguments than they were. I felt like it was surprising to me that Amy Coney Barrett had any concerns at all with the standing issue. And it seems like she legitimately did. So I think that there's also there's an opportunity for conservatives to save face and say, this isn't good because standing isn't here, but there are other opportunities for people to challenge this. And we're not actually weighing in on the merits at all. So it, it's possible. Right. And that's what I was thinking. Like, I feel like if, if, if the debt cancellation is upheld, it will be because of standing. Like, I don't think, I don't think that the conservative, I think the conservatives will likely, I guess, do the, like, I'm a law school dropout. So I'm, if Me I too, just phrase the process, but it would be like um, the three liberal justices would like either do their own explaining as to why this should be upheld. And then the others will just say this shouldn't be upheld on standing grounds, but I don't know. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Maybe it's worth trying to get Nico back on the, on the podcast to talk about it. Let me know the outcome here. But look, thanks. Thanks for calling in. This is, this has been interesting, Christopher. Thank you, Brie. All and right, keep, keep the, the faith. faith. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Dirk, what's on your mind tonight? Dirk, can you unmute yourself? Calling all Dirks. Calling all Dirks. Are you with us, Dirk? Is Dirk in the chat? I'm here. The button doesn't <laughs> work. No worries at all. What's on your mind tonight, Dirk? Oh, you can hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Uh, Bree, I'm really just calling to apologize for uh, last week when I called in. And um, I I completely miscommunicated my point. I know a lot of people listening right now might not have been on the program last week, but uh, you know, I called in to talk about your interview on Rising with Lisa Selen Davis regarding the GLAD uh, open letter to the New York Times or the you know, the group of contributors that wrote to the New York Times and, and how all of that went. And um, I, I feel like... Uh, you know, I love you, and I I appreciate the work that you do. Um, I wanted to offer the gentlest of criticism, and I am embarrassed that I did not do that successfully. Uh, I thought I had a point to make, um, but I feel like after listening to the show again, after I got off, I, you know, did did myself no favors by approaching you the way that I did. So I'm, I'm really just here to apologize. If you want to just move on, I'm totally cool with that. I'll never bother you again. Uh, no, no, need, no need for that, Dirk. Look, I, I appreciate you calling in. I, there's no need to apologize, but I, I appreciate the sentiment. You know, obviously you're entitled to your opinion, you know, and it's fine. I look forward to talking to you going forward and I appreciate you being a part of this community. So 
Is there any is there anything else that you wanted to say about any of the uh, episodes since then, or anything else that's been going on in the, the public sphere? Don't don't beat yourself up over that. I, please, uh, okay. please, Derek. Thank you, thank you. That's very generous of you, and uh, it means a lot to me. Like I, uh, I you know I I avoid getting you know too much into public discourse as much as I can, and it's really only in situations where I feel like you know, we on the left are missing something and an, an alarm needs to get pulled that I try to interject my opinions into the, the discourse as a whole. And I really feel like the left has ended up in a weird position around some of the culture war questions where, you know, we have... It, how it looks to me is we've been set up to fail and specifically around this, you know, letter that was written to the New York times and the affirmative model of care and the problems with it uh, that are inevitably going to follow are just completely being missed by everyone on the left because we are, you know, focused on things that aren't, culture war related. Um, and, you know, I, I, I thought there was a real opportunity that you had in that interview with Lisa to, you know, get into this subject in a meaningful way that was lost by, you know, associating really everybody who's on the <clears throat> more conservative side or even centrist side of the trans rights conversation as being a transphobe, as being equivalent. Derek, to I got to stop you because I'm not going to do this again. I literally didn't do that. My literal response to her was because you are not like Matt Walsh. She said in her remarks that there's a, she feels like Matt Walsh does not represent her and that he does a disservice to the movement. Therefore, I asked her. Because that is happening, do you feel like there needs to be more of an effort to distance yourself? I don't remember my exact words now, but the, the, my whole line of question, questioning was, in fact, contingent on my recognition that she was not, in fact, conflated with my, Matt Walsh. So I really implore you to go and listen to that again, but I don't need to, need to repeat myself again. I think that you, this is not a disagreement. I think we have a factual misunderstanding of what I said. So you can go back. It's, it's written in stone on the Internet, and you can go back and watch it a billion, billion times. But I did not, in fact, conflate her and Matt Walsh. I did the exact opposite. So I appreciate you calling in, Dirk, and I'm going to move on because I don't think we need to necessarily retread this. But keep the faith. All right, David, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bria, can you hear me? Loud and clear. All right. Uh, so first of all, I'll just have a quick comment. Uh, I, I want uh, to, to throw in my vote for more episodes like the one you did last week with uh, uh, Professor Hansen. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah, no, I really like that. Either either to have him back or have more people talk about sort of the legal history of a lot of these things to how we got to the place that we're here, that we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Be very interesting. Yeah, like, when I, when I say that, like, that class or those classes were so formative, it's because, I mean, they just, it's not like you gave me beliefs, but it helped me to understand how we got here, and then that motivated me to feel like, it's not a fool's errand when someone like Bernie comes along and can unwind it. Because when you see how this horrible edifice was built that we're all living in right now, 
you see that like the Republicans had a plan, they put it into effect, it took 30 years and they got it done. And we can do the same thing, but it just it requires that kind of discipline and long-term strategic thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that, that was just my comment. And then to go on to like what we're talking, <laughs> talking about tonight, um, the, we were, you were touching a little bit on um, judicial review and how that's, you know, not expressly in the constitution, how that's something that has been created. Um, I, I'm a little bit wary personally about, uh, about changes to that, even mm-hmm. as much as like the court. Um, I don't know how much you follow uh, what's going on in Israel politically right now uh, with their Knesset and their courts. Um, Fill us in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there Likud is the the ruling party right now. They're the main part of the coalition, and they're specifically trying to um, ignore uh, their Supreme Court, um, which again is not great, but it's like the most you know left leaning institution in Israel right now. Um, my father was uh, on a uh, phone calls as uh, with. Uh, not a phone call, but a, a group meeting with uh, one of the members of uh, the Knesset um, as part of uh, one of the rabbinical assemblies. Um, and the, what they were saying was very concerning. Uh, the, the, the wording that they used consistently was, we, we appreciate the courts, but we want to rule. Um, and specifically, it's, you know, they're trying to expand um, uh, settler, Jewish settler rights is how they mm-hmm. put it, but it's basically these these areas in occupied territory that they're trying to establish mm-hmm. um, more permanent uh, housing for their citizens and push other people out. Um, so they're trying to basically just ignore the last line of defense that um, these Palestinian uh, populations have um, to challenge things with uh, within Israel and just make it not a thing anymore. Just ignore it. Yeah. Um, Well, let me ask you this question. Sure. Do you feel as though absent, I don't, I don't really fully know how the court system works in Israel, but assuming there's any kind of parallels to our system, do you think that absent, how should I put this? The, there's an argument that goes to the extent that there's political bias and con- right wing or even hypothetically left wing parties that were willing to ignore the courts and ignore rule of law. They are able to do that not just by kind of executive fiat, but by picking who was on the court and that if there is a person like that, they're going to pack the court with their people anyway and take it over one way or the other. And to the extent that there are any limits imposed by the court, then they can then ignore them at that stage. And the argument that's made by Nico Bowie is that if you look at the history of the court and the moments at which it has actually stepped in to preserve the rights of historically marginalized groups and other vulnerable interests, it, it those moments are few and far between. And that most, you know, and that mostly it's the courts being used to bulldoze those individual liberties or the the individual liberties that states are trying to protect. And that on balance, that gives him confidence that we're better off without a Supreme Court. 
where we're better off at least without uh, the Supreme, with the you know without the, with the power of judicial review. The Supreme Court should only decide factual questions like is the president 35 years old and able to be president. Right. No, I, I understand, um, and there's parts of me that agree with that argument, frankly. Um, and I, I would have to say what's going on in Israel right now gives me real pause. Um, because they have elected a truly extremist government. Um, just, just for example, Etoan Ben Gavir, who is in charge of um, Israeli security in the occupied territories, um, has been recognized by the Israeli government to be a terrorist. Um, he leads a violent street gang, and he uh, has personally participated in murders. So, I mean... I, I don't know if you saw, there was just recently um, a, a flare-up of violence in Huara, um, in, in the West, or sorry, in, uh, I, I think they're south of Jenin. Um, but um, there were, you know, a, a mob of Jewish settlers, um, along with some of the uh, Israeli Defense Force soldiers, um, burned 30 homes to the ground. Mm. Um, and it was in response to... Um, some Jewish settlers being assassinated. But the, the, the issue is, is that because the elected government right now is so lopsided in its support of the settlement movement that is in contravention of international law, they're not going to punish um, any, any Israeli settlers that are committing these acts of violence. Um, they're only going to be looking at the, the side of the Palestinian violence. Um, so it sort of leaves the Palestinian population without a champion of any kind other than... But the, but the, qu the question is, I mean, I hear you, but the question is, is the Supreme Court actually in a position to do anything about it? I mean, you're, you're talking about a scenario, I presume, where there still is an intact... So, court system. Like the, the, the question is, like, the, the problem is that I think that the, the argument that Nico is making is we're living in this world where we presume that there are checks and balances. And we're all acting like there's checks and balances. And we're all acting like, well, sometimes the court doesn't reach in and protect us, but like, there's a possibility that if things get really crazy, you know, there's this one last backstop against some real crazy shit that goes down. But in fact, when you look at history, it just almost never is the case almost zero numbers out of thousands of cases is the case that the court is able to or willing to step in because if the issue is that there are these governments or these administrations that are so right-wing and terrible they have also had the ability to in fact affect the court by appointing judges or doing whatever they're going to do so that it doesn't even if the court you know even if the court structurally were able to stop them they can't and also, at the end of the day, if people want to ignore the courts, the courts have no enforcement authority, and it's all a kind of a gentleman's agreement <laughs> that we're, we're operating yeah. under. I mean, right? that's a good point, because even in my example, I don't really know as much as the court is dissenting against this. I'm not sure what they can functionally do. Like, what's going to happen? And, and, right. and, if, and at that point, like... Are we all just participating in this fiction? Would it be better if we just masked off this 
and expose the the authoritarianism for what it is and the vulnerability of all of us for what it is and get people in action. Because what actually happened, you know, FDR was able to pass his policies right. because he strong-armed the court. Right. He bullied the court. He said, I'm going to diminish your power and authority by diluting you by appointing a 1,000 just- justices that are going to rule in my favor anyway, and then you'll be worthless. Plus, he's got mobs of communists outside advocating for to go even more left than what he's even doing legislatively. You know, right. and that's that's where power is. That's why change actually happens. It's not this idea that if you just get the smartest lawyer in the room and they make the best arguments, then they'll have to agree, which is part of why this stuff with Jeff. I mean, like, I, as I was listening to the two of them go back and forth, I, I just there was a moment where I was like, well, like, I might agree with this argument or disagree with that argument, but it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Ultimately, the idea that Heroes Act versus uh, the Higher Education Act, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I think that it, symbolically there's a way to lose where the left has a stronger argument about how unjust this is and it, it's a better rallying cry for the people. And to that extent that it, ma- it matters, you know, if we lose on the best argument, then we've got a better case to get people mad and in the streets and exercising more direct power. But ultimately, the idea that like these people are, will be persuaded by arguments is all a fiction. I 100% agree with that. I mean, personally, I do not think that I, I'm not going to abandon electoral politics because it's there, but I, I don't think it's the solution. I think mad and in the streets is the solution. I think people have to stop things up because there is very clearly this system that no longer cares about um, large amounts of public sentiment. Um, mm. I, I, I don't know. I think this... I think a lot of it is just that I, I personally feel lost because there really don't feel like there are institutions in this country at all within the government, at least within what we've defined in our government, um, that you can really like pull these levers of power anymore, that, that we can really have that impact. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's, so it's scary. Yes. It's it scary. Is. And I understand we need to cling to something. And I understand like Jed saying, Oh, well, you know, we have to be concerned about the lawlessness that will come if we expand executive power and we say that, you know, these emergency acts can be used for this, that and the other. And what if Trump uses it to build a border wall? And And I'm like, well, Trump did use it to build a border wall. Like that shit happened. (laughs) Like that shit happens with or without student debt getting canceled. Yeah. You know, like in, in. I, I don't know. Like I'm sensitive to that. I like. I don't want to be like. Um, well, you guys did a bad thing, so let's double down and do a bad thing. Or like, I, but like, it, it cannot be when the stakes are as high as they are that we are the only side playing by the rules. At a certain point, yeah. you just look like a fool. Right. There are no rules. Let's stop pretending there's rules. <laughs> right. <laughs> and let's fight for what matters. Right. I. I mean. I, that, that's a whole nother issue of just corporate capture uh, in the Democratic Party of, of, you know, because I do feel I, I think it's become pretty obvious that in a lot of cases they are relying on the rules as a way of excusing their unwillingness to do anything that would harm corporate America. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Into this whole issue of how do you get a crop of candidates that is not beholden in that way and Frankly, it's kind of impossible in this in in the political environment that we have, which is why I think uh, change comes from the ground up here. It's going to have to be people 
basically breaking these um, sort of economic systems that corporate America relies on stopping labor and, you know, just. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's why I think the conversation needs to be student debt cancellation is enormously popular. Biden had the authority to do this. Trump uses the same kinds of authorities to do a bunch of bullshit things. But now when it comes to helping the normal working people, whatever, 80% of the people affected make under $70,000 a year, whatever the stat is, don't quote me on that. Suddenly, it's persona non grata. Suddenly, the Supreme Court wants to overturn it. When it's handing out PPP loans, nobody brought any lawsuits to challenge that. They went out the door without a question. There was no notice and comment period. Nobody gave a shit. And all these horrible people like Jared Kushner and Kanye West got money. But suddenly, now it's the people. Okay, we've got Republicans right now. There's a train disaster and a Trump heavy Trump district. And you've got conservatives who feel like this is good for them and they can argue that, you know, Democrats, Biden isn't delivering for the people. Okay, this is a moment where we should be talking about then why weren't you supportive of the labor struggle? Let's go through the open secrets and see who's taking money from the railway industry and other and oil and gas and these hazardous materials. Let's talk about whose voting records are what and who's actually responsible. Let's get Biden on the ground in East Palestine talking about that and giving out supplies. Call, call the bluff of... These Republicans say, okay, I'm going to use my executive authority to give Medicare for all for life to everybody in this town the way that Joe Biden absolutely can using emergency powers and sit here and tell him he can't and then draw some analogy to what's going on with student debt. You know, this is this is what it should be. And the left should be on the forefront of making these kind of arguments. But what are they doing? Well, I watched a video today with where Jamal Bowman and Byron Donalds, the Republican who they put forward for one of the um, Speaker of the House votes. Um, in February, in January, when the Republicans were doing force the vote, talking, slapping each other in the back and dapping each other up on the steps of Congress, joking around like they were in a barbershop about, oh, I got two candidates from Florida going to run for office, uh, Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis. Florida's going heavy. Florida's going hard. And then Jamal Bowman going, oh, come on, man. You know, is Donald Trump claiming Florida? Because I thought he was from New York. I'm from New York. New York's the one that's got the best politicians. Acting like this is some kind of like right. playing the dozens in somebody's backyard at the barbecue. It's ridiculous. Right. That's what our progressives are up to right now. It's, I, it's, I it makes me sick. It, same here. <laughs> I mean, that is the problem. And to an extent, I, I also feel like that was the problem with the end of Bernie's campaign. I, I don't feel like Bernie is, you know, or really any of these other guys, anyone right now, um, on the progressive stage in a national sense, um, is, is willing to burn the Democratic Party. I, I, I feel it, it seems very clear that they're, you know, either afraid of what will happen, you know, with Republican leadership, or they're afraid of burning all their bridges. But th- that's got to happen at some point. We, there has to be this pressure put on that, you know, when push comes to shove, you're not going to play ball. You're not going to just continue to do the same old, same old thing. And mm-hmm. there is going to be pressure to, to do something, you know, radical or revolutionary, whatever you want to say, just something different from the status quo. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how to get people to that point. I, people don't like to hear it, but there just has to be a thousand times more adversarialness than there is right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. People who are like, oh, Jimmy Dore is... He's too loud. Oh, boy. Politeness isn't going to get you there. Um, you know, and there's going to have to be a much higher level of civil disobedience. 
and this kind of like, well, I got to vote for the lesser of two evilism isn't going to do it either. And there's going to have to be a lot more labor stridency, shall, shall, shall we say. And it's wonderful to see, like, this This last year set all kinds of records for, at least in more, in more recent history, um, uh, um, un- workforces unionizing, all of the retail establishments and coffee shops, you know, teacher strikes, nurses strikes. I mean, there was, it was a very active labor year, despite it all. The warrior met strike just in it was the longest strike in the history of coal or whatever the stat is. Obviously, the Amazon... You know, there's stuff going on, but it's going to have to, that's the direction it has to go in and by an order of magnitude. Because that rail strike, the the other half of the rail strike that's so disappointing is, you know, and I don't mean to say disappointing because I'm not the one that's suffering the consequences of it, right? Like, I'm not going to tell somebody else what to do or what to feel or to give up their salary and everyone's so precarious. So, like, I say this with humility, but, like, there is a world where the... We're wildcatting stuff, you know. I do the rail. The rail strike is a little different um, for a wildcat because I, from my understanding, there there could actually be legal repercussions. Yeah, that's my understanding you, too. Not just that you lose your job, but there could be you know something yep. that has consequences. Yes, there's a world where Joe Biden has to face the public the public blowback of literally arresting the people who are supposed to be national heroes because they work through COVID and the supply chain crisis. And he's Mr. Amtrak and Mr. Labor. And now East Palestine has happened. Yes. I think that the, that the fact that the railroad, um, whatever act, sorry, yeah, <laughs> forces you puts those kind of potential criminal penalties on you is exactly why those kinds of actions are important. Let's show America what this, what this statute actually says. That we're going to arrest these people for exercising their basic right to protest and to not work. I I agree, and personally, if it was me, I would do it. But if that that one is one where I have a little harder time condemning people for making. I, like I said, I I don't condemn anybody for anything. I say yeah. this with humility. But you ask me what it's going to take. No, I I agree. That is what it's going to take. You know. Um, I think we're on the it's, same page it's, there. The only game is highlighting the contrast. And it's an extreme contrast to point out that some people get thrown in jail if they stop working. And we're yeah. calling that free speech. We're calling that democracy. I would call that slavery. That's a form you, of, you know. Uh, pre- uh, preach. Yeah. It's, you, it's, you know. Yeah, well, we need to be having that conversation, but we're not as long as everybody acts like, oh, there's nothing Biden could have done. His hands were tied. Who needs vacation days anyway? We're not going to have conversations on MSNBC or Fox News about who's got payola. Like we're just we're just pretending that these are like, oh, things that happen, you know, just couldn't get the votes. No reason why. Just like magic. That's just who can tell why people do what they do. Oh, well, on to the next. Yeah, at least you got your Christmas gifts on time. I know that's the 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 appeal to the sort of selfishness of Americans of you know you're not going to get your goodies if this doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, it's particularly sad. Yep. Well, look, thank you for calling in, David. This has been a good chat. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for taking my call. Yeah, of course. Keep the faith. I will. <laughs> All right, uh, Rebecca, you're up next. Also, I did not charge my phone before this, so I'm going to be 
disconnecting from my microphone and having slightly less good sound quality for the next 30 minutes or so while I charge up. So shoot, go ahead. Go ahead, Rebecca. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Um, Wow. Awesome. Um, Great. Well, the reason I called, I mean, um, I did have one small comment about, um, what's his name? Deb um, from the student debt episode. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like you had the perfect critique of him in your interview with Christian Parenti, where you're talking about like people on the left who just love to critique and, and love to bring down strategy, but don't like really offer anything better or a way to win. Um, and I think like that's kind of the vibe I got from him in this debate where he just like was like all about his strategy for using the higher education act and like unwilling to admit like, well, the time for that has passed and we have to do something to help the student debt relief and like, um, you know, poking holes in Biden's argument isn't going to help anyone right now, you know? Mm-hmm. At, I mean, at least that's well, what I his, his argument has been that he wants, he wanted this, he was, so he was afraid, he was, he thought that this case was going to take longer to get to the Supreme Court and that it was going to take longer to resolve. And as a consequence, there wasn't going to be enough time for Biden to take the alternative approach afterward. So his goal has been to basically kill this as fast as possible. So there's enough time remaining in the Biden administration for him to file, you know, to try again using the Higher Education Act, which is a longer process because of the notice and comment periods and, and other administrative law things. Okay. So his, his perspective is, like, I do have a strategy. It's you just got to kill this this bad version so we have enough time to do, the, do it the right way afterward. Um, it, it, now it seems like he was saying that there's already not enough time to do the HEROES Act. I'm sorry, the Higher Education Act anyway. That's kind of what I thought. Then it's good. Like if Biden wins again or a Democrat wins again, then there's still time presuming that they share Biden's policy objective. But that that is ostensibly what his argument has been, whether or not you accept it. I I wouldn't say it's necessarily like a, he doesn't have a plan. It's just, you you know, there's a question about whether or not that's actually strategically the best choice of action. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess I understand that a little better now. But I, I still feel like there's a lot of like coulds and what ifs and maybes and um, you know if we can get it done now why why wouldn't we is my my thought. <laughs> I mean I think it's been hard getting like such a straight answer out of some of the student debt folks, but my my impression has been like that they they like this is what is happening and they're so in it like they you know someone like. Persis does this consumer protection work every single day and knows the nuts and bolts and is like in this as a consumer mm-hmm. advocate. And they're like, well, this is as close as we've ever come. We've just got to make the best of it. And they believe that we have an argument, even if this is a less, less good version of it. So why are we trying to punch holes in this? We should just try to make this carry the day. And to the extent that this would get shut, shut down, it's because there's a biased court and the other version is going to get shut down anyway. So let's not make this let's not in a public sphere admit to any vulnerabilities here because it's just going to make our job harder once we lose to get people angry enough to, to, you know, to, to, to channel this into something useful. And I, and I get and appreciate that perspective, but Jed, at, especially at an earlier time was very persuasive to me as well. 
if the argument is like, no, there's still time to do it a better way. Why would you ever waste our time with this bad version when there's still an opportunity to do the, the good version? I mean, in my view, I like the best way to move the movement forward is to actually forgive some people's debts because then it makes it's like a, a little win that makes people more excited and um, galvanized to keep moving the thing forward. And then maybe, you know, 10 years down the line, you know, this, the new students who are graduating with a ton of debt can be like, hey, this debt got forgiven earlier. Let's go back and let's do it again the right way. And, you know, and then we can truly do it like the higher education route, like the way that Jeb was saying. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that we can't force the Supreme Court. I mean, oh, no well. one's debt is going to get canceled. I mean, like, <laughs> the problem is getting to that place where anybody's debt is canceled. Right. Yes. Yeah, that is the problem. Um, well, okay. So the real reason that I wanted to call and talk um, was actually not related to the student debt thing. Um, okay. I really enjoyed the episode that you had with Stephanie Kelton. Kelton. Um, yeah, about the MMT, like monetary theory. Um, and I just feel like there's some parts of her argument that I'm still unsure about. Like, yeah. um, I understand that like U.S. bonds are desirable at this moment and lots of countries buy them and um, bondholders buy them and pension funds buy them because it's like a safe investment. Um, but I think like that is only because of the fact that at this moment, the U.S. dollar is the international reserve currency, um, mm -hmm. and that's something that may not last much longer. And also um, something that has sort of the U.S. has sort of pressured other like countries into accepting. Um, there's this awesome book called Super Imperialism. It was written by the economist uh, Michael Hudson, um, and he sort of talks about how America's turned its debt into a system that's too big to fail. Um, mm -hmm. So that like if anyone stops buying our debt, um, it causes all these other economies sort of in a domino effect to crash around the world. And mm -hmm. so um, it's what's allowed us to keep printing money um, at these rates that we have been and doing QE to like the trillions of dollars and not suffer inflation. Um, but it's also something that other countries are becoming more and more cautious about and um yeah, so th there's a concern that we can't just keep printing money forever. And so I would love to know, like, her thoughts on that. Or maybe if you had Michael Hudson on, you could ask him his thoughts on MMT or something like that. Yeah, I'd love to have Michael Hudson on. That's a good suggestion. I'm going to take that note. I, that's, that's, I mean, I, you know, I can't explain it to you. So that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a great idea for a follow-up. Let me write that down. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, those are my only two comments that I had to share. Um, so I guess um, <laughs> keep the faith. <laughs> Thanks for all the hard work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. Appreciate you. you right back at you. All right. Morgan, with this uh, hilarious dog photoshopped on your that's head. That's not photoshopped. That I'm that's, enjoying. that's real. That's <laughs> <laughs> What is on your mind tonight other than a literal canine? <laughs> uh, good. So I wondered if I could be your, your fiat fairy god godmother for a second here um, and just do maybe a silly thought experiment when it comes to direct action and social or in student loans. Sure. Um, okay. So like, I, you know, um, little preface, I definitely don't have any faith in the courts to do anything that ratifies working people's power. Um, so like, 
like you, I, I kind of just think, okay, what are the direct action things we could do? What do you think would happen? And this could be a terrible idea. It probably is. Um, if just like everyone with student loan debt just stopped paying it all at the same time, mm-hmm. what, what do you think would occur? So we had some episodes about this way early on um, with Astra and I don't remember if it was Astra and Sparky or some other combination of student debt advocates. But, you know, her organization is called Strike Debt and they do debt strikes all the time. Uh, And I, you know, I've questioned her at times about whether the plan was when the moratoriums were set to end, obviously there's been like a zillion extensions so far, but whenever one of the first deadlines was up, what, whether or not they had, had organized or planned to organize to have a debt strike and just demand and, and commit to not paying. And I found her answers to be a little, um, you know, um, imprecise on that. And I'm not entirely sure why, what the politics of that are. But I was very much of the mind that if you really want Biden to cancel student debt, and this was long before he actually was putting out any kind of plan in real life, um, that there had to be some credible threat. And so many people were unable to pay anyway. And we're in a moment where it's very easy to get people's, or I should say more easy to get people's attention to participate in something like this, because you've got millions of people all being asked to turn on your debt at the same time who are being very attentive to the idea that they are part of a large class who could simply withhold and have the insulation of being one of millions instead of just one of a handful. That organization has done other debt strikes over um, other, I think, kinds of student debt from people from, I think, some of those for-profit colleges. I think they've they've bought and, pay, and paid off people's medical debt. They've done a lot of, like, direct action-y stuff like that in the past successfully, but for much smaller numbers of people, like a few, you know, a few hundreds, a few thousands of people. And so I think it's a good idea is the long, the long and short of what I'm saying. The question is, who's, is there anybody in a position to organize it? And, and, and are there people who are in the position to organize it willing to do so, or is there some political impediment to them doing so? Interesting question. Sometimes I fantasize about like some awesome group of hackers that just shuts down all of the like payment processing systems for these particular companies. Like that would be a good way to do it. Yes, Uh, that would be so cool. I'm not (laughs) telling anybody what to do. I'm not part of this criminal conspiracy. But like hypothetically, if it were just like a movie plot, I agree. That would be such a dope movie. Gosh, who will make that movie? Hollywood. Who will make that movie? But thank you. That's that's really the only question I had is is just sort of because I think about like think about precedent for that sort of action. And when you think about like the housing bubble, that's kind of precedent for that sort of action. You know, enormous amounts of debt being defaulted on all at once by millions of people seems to be pretty effective for communication in the financial realm. You know, yeah. Um, and look, I already see people every time there's some article about student debt on like a pop culture blog, you know, where people are just shooting their show on Instagram or whatever, not like a political space. It's a bunch of people being like, I'm not paying my debt. They can tell me I'm not paying shit. Like Biden said he was going to do this. I'm not paying shit. Like people have that energy. And obviously that's just talk on the internet. I felt like a genius when I didn't pay my student loan debts for 10 years. And then the student loan debt forgiveness comes around. I felt like a, I felt like, you know, rain man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, probably if i were financially literate i probably should have refinanced a long time ago 
but I always, I never wanted to exclude myself from potentially, if I, I was like, well, maybe I'll do a public interest job. I don't want to take myself out of eligibility for some of these loan forgiveness programs. So I never did. Um, and I'm glad I didn't. And I'm technically, I, I, and I actually found out that I, because you're, um, because the forgiveness is based on your salary in 2020 and I was unemployed for most of 2020, I actually, this is like, people are going to use this against the program, so I'm reluctant to say it, but like I actually did qualify um, for Biden's 10,000 at least of forgiveness. And, you know, I, I was also very pleased with myself. <laughs> financing i mean i probably yeah. would have stayed more than ten thousand dollars well you know you, you know what's funny to me is that like when it when the first iteration of it rolled around and you were able to just go online and apply for the forgiveness i think mm -hmm. it was over the summer right mm -hmm. um i did that and it was excruciatingly easy like mm -hmm. it was not at all difficult i had never ever ever before interacted with the government in such an easy way online and in in that moment i had this niggling doubt that was like that was a little too easy <laughs> <laughs> like, I think maybe they got something in the pipeline that's going to say no to this in, in the next couple of months once the midterms are all good and campaigned for. Um, and so there's there's I just feel like I'm so broken down uh, by the like the paranoia of, of of media and the left and the right nowadays. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, that's a ramble. No, I, I get you. I get you. And look, again, never forget that if Biden had just canceled it on, on day one without means testing it, as easy as that form was, if there had been no form and he had just done it and the money had just disappeared from our balance sheets, there was no way that conservatives were going to be able to unwind it. And so that was an opportunity that he chose not to take. Which is pretty obvious. That's why the guy's in office, right, is to make those sorts of decisions. Yep. Yeah. We need and they got the person that they need in, you know. Also, Miguel Cardona, who for some reason is just not a part of this conversation, the secretary of education, who nobody even knows who he is, he should never have another job as far as I'm concerned. Like, people should be hopping mad, and this should be ruining his political credibility the same way that Pete Buttigieg's political credibility is getting tarnished over uh, Palestine, East Palestine. So don't forget, Miguel Cardona, I'll go tell sure, him on I'll be sure to tarnish Instagram his reputation at every opportunity in the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's all yeah. I had to say. Thanks for giving me a platform. And uh, thanks yeah. for the debrief. Thank you for calling in, Morgan. Keep the faith. All right. Scroll, scroll, scroll. We're hopping around. We're hopping around. How about... Lysol, I feel like I haven't called on you in a while. Or maybe I have, but you just changed your avatar pick and I've been tricked. <laughs> What's in your mind, Lysol? Hey, Bree. Um, slightly tricked. I changed my profile pick. Yeah, you got me. You got me. All right. What's in your mind? Well, not, on, not on purpose. It's just because I'm, I'm premiering the San Francisco local political call-in show next week. So I figured I'd throw some promo at it. Oh, cool. Um, do you want to promo it? Do you want to, do you want to talk about it? Um, sure. Yeah. Just real briefly. It's called Don't Call It San Fran. And it's um, it's going to be me and a local journalist named Brokass Stewart, who um, ran for mayor in 2017 on a ranked choice voting awareness platform. Cool. And we're going to be hosting local journalists, talking to local drag queens, people about events. Um, did you see the Michael Moritz uh, New York Times article? I didn't. What was that about? Um, it was 
even San Franciscans like me are getting tired of the city. So for, for background, he is the guy behind Sequoia Capital. He regularly spends millions of dollars on electoral cycles. He yeah. funds the uh, recall of our district attorney, who is basically our Larry Krasner, uh, mm-hmm. Jason, as well as three, um, three members of the school board. And he was here to complain about how progressives have ruined the city, which is just like, it's the same thing as that San Francisco thing. It's like, if they let progressive anywhere near power in the city, you'd hear about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That sounds like a great event. Uh, what is it happening? Oh, the show is going to be, it's going to be every other Wednesday starting uh, next Wednesday, March 8th at 6 p.m. Terrific. You heard it. You heard it, folks. Go support Lysol. But what, what did you call in to talk about tonight? Oh, um... I was kind of wondering if we could talk about Worker Strike Back. Is there going to be a rally near you? You go in any of those? Oh, that's a great question. I actually believe that there is an event on Saturday. Uh, and it's not clear to me where it is. And I stepped away from my computer to charge my phone, so I cannot Google it easily right now. Uh, ooh, but I, just Google it, because I actually think there is an event this Saturday. Some kind yeah. of launch event. Yeah, the I remember getting an email out. from Shama that I was neglectful about returning, but I remember distinctly that it was on March 4th. Yeah, I'm going to the one. There's So the, the Bay Area one is going to be in Berkeley. Okay. It's nice because, like, I mean, it wasn't back-to-back, but it was like, you know, an anti-war rally and a pro-union movement rally in the last two weekends. This has got me feeling, you know, I'm not going to say optimistic because everybody who's uh, Bernie's ex-boyfriend or girlfriend has been hurt. And he's <laughs> therapy on Colin to get over it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm loving the momentum. Uh, RBN also said that they're going to start setting up some local chapters. So oh, nice. um, any of the folks listening right now, they're in the Bay area. Let's do that shit. That's awesome. That's terrific. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to start paying attention. I've been a little behind on lots of things, uh, but I, I'm going to follow up on that Shama correspondence. And um, that, that is really exciting. That, that effort in particular gives me a lot of hope. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm also hoping Chris Smalls is going to be involved in some way because, you know, he's still my, him and Kashama and my, my one and two and my realist one, realist leftist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good ranking. Someone should make one of those, um, those graphics that go around on Twitter and make everybody mad about, you know, there's like two axis axes and it's like, who's the most newsworthy and who's the most left. Did you, did you see the one that went around that everyone was mad about? But I was you were in the bubble of faith. Yeah, I was in the I was in the sweet spot. <laughs> that was Neo's algorithm. He's called into the show before. Oh, that was Neo's algorithm. LOL. No wonder I'm in the sweet spot. <laughs> well, it made literally everybody furious except for me. So I am appreciative. <laughs> yeah, he took it down within like four or five hours. I think he got a lot, a big, big shitstorm for that. All right. Well. Not not everybody can be blessed in in Neo's literal algorithm. <laughs> but thanks for calling in, Lysol. Yeah, for sure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, Andrew. What is on your mind tonight? Bree, hello. Hello. Hey. Um. Yeah. Good work as always. I was happy to see another episode discussing defunding the FBI. I have been super busy. So I haven't listened to that one yet, but I will. Um, but I was going to ask a couple questions. One, um, what is the status? Have you talked to Ralph at all since uh, you talked with Ralph Nader and you 
you expressed interest in in kind of helping him organize a bunch of volunteers to push for single payer health care. Um, and I'm curious if you had uh, if you still wanted to do that and, and if you had any plans. I haven't spoken to Ralph since then, uh, but, you know, it would be nice. I got to say, I'm, I'm having a bandwidth issue. Yeah. I don't, you know, that's that. I feel like it's something that I don't know what's on worker strike back agenda, but that does feel like something that, you know, an organizing effort like that could potentially be on, you know, and I yeah. wonder if Ralph Nader is going to be involved with worker strike back. That that would be a good question to ask, I think. I'd hope so. Ralph has done a lot of uh, good work over the years. I was just looking. I can't go to the startup rally on Saturday. I'm, I'm mm. actually in the U.S. for the first time in like a year and a half. So I'm, mm. I, I was able to go to that um, Seattle sister event to the war, Rage Against the War Machine thing and just see how that was. Um, but I'm not going to be able to do the worker strike back. So if anybody is going to be at the Seattle one, tell me how it goes. Um, I was going to ask another uh, question. Um, and that is for the debt strike. There was the can't pay, won't pay, or I don't remember if that was the name of the campaign in, uh, in the UK where they were trying to get to a million people who were going to refuse to pay their energy bills. Mm. And they had gotten pretty close to a million the last that I saw. And then I kind of stopped hearing anything about it. And I'd be curious, um, to see like, could a similar strategy that they used to, cause they, they did get within a couple of months, nearly a million people signed up. And if you even had that many, uh, people signing up to say, I'm not going to pay my student debt cause I can't, or because it's whatever, it's unjust or something along those lines. Um, I'd, I would love to see if maybe we can connect people with the, the can't pay, won't pay UK's, um, campaign and see if they could help or just discuss their own strategy. Yeah, that would be really cool. I mean, I remember asking Astra, like, even, you know, is there a petition? Like, are you, do you even want to take the temperature of how many people might be interested? You know, how can I help? I'm happy to, like, promote it or advertise it or tweet about it or, you know, get a campaign going. Can all of the progressive, you know, this is something that all of us should agree on. The TYTs and the David Doles and the Jimmy Doors and the across the spectrum, everyone should be kind of on board with an effort like that. And, you know, I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn, but I got the impression that that just was not the direction that they were trying to go in. And I don't know why entirely. So I don't know. I think that's a, a very good question, especially if this Supreme Court effort fails. I mean, arguably, this is the kind of movement that should precede the Supreme Court making a decision because, again, it's the kind of pressure. Like, if they know there's a debt crisis on their hand, if they invalidate Biden's program, well, maybe there's not, there's, you know, even less incentive to invalidate it. Like, maybe everyone just saves face, says the um, case dies because of these standing issues, and they solve themselves, they avoid the much bigger problem of having a, be- a bunch of non-payments on their hands yeah yeah i i agree i i guess maybe what i'll do is i'll i'll look into the the can't pay won't pay uk um campaign and see if i can contact any of their people and and ask them their thoughts um but i was gonna uh also bring up a couple things about the fbi if you have a little more time for me yeah sure um 
first thing I'll say is we just passed on Monday the 50th anniversary of the Wounded Knee um, occupation and uprising, uh, which was uh, organized by the American Indian Movement and began Mm -hmm. in 73. And that movement, along with um, many other campaigns by AIM, were really violently shut down and destroyed by the FBI. Um, And I mentioned to you a few months ago that um, Leonard Peltier, who was an AIM member who was helping to um, protect people living in the Pine Ridge Reservation, in 1975, a few uh, undercover FBI officers rolled up to a spot in the reservation where Leonard and some other AIM members were and began firing at the AIM members with service revolvers. They fired mm-hmm. back, killed two officers. And um, even though Peltier was not one of the people who, who killed the officers, the other two people were acquitted on self-defense or they were, they were, they were ruled not guilty by the jury on self-defense. And then Leonard was imprisoned in a really, scammy trial and he's still in jail and so i think if you're going to keep doing episodes on abolition i would encourage you again to try to talk to somebody from maybe aim or the international leonard peltier defense committee and discuss um you know again it's kind of more of that balance sheet of what is the fbi even spending its time doing and if we just if even if we didn't replace it with anything what would be the pros and cons of removing it um Mm. And then one more plea, check, check your Patreon messages. I, I'll send you another one closer to the end of the show if you want. And that way I'll hopefully be kind of close to the top of your queue. Because I do still want to connect you with someone from Morena and talk about how Mexico abolished their federal police. Okay, we'll, we'll do. Thank you so much for your patience with me and my back. No worries. Also, yeah, let us know if you, if you do end up hiring someone. You were talking about like doing a kind of re- organizing for the new year and getting more help. Um, I don't know how I can help that, but I would, I would like to. Um, so anyways. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. Keep the faith. All right. No war, Chris. Que pasa? What's on your mind? Chris, you with us? Good evening, Bree. Sorry. <laughs> Good evening. What's on your mind? Call on me. It was. Uh, I thought you were jumping around a little bit, but anyway. One from, the, one from the front. One from jumping around. One from the front. One from jumping around. That's the pattern. Boom! I made it to the top. Um. Anyway, I had a little bit of an abstract conversation with uh with Katie uh mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks uh in regards to. Um, the the rally, and uh-huh. I know you've discussed a little bit. I've missed a little bit. I did catch your Christian Parenti episode, and you guys talked about it a little bit there. And you, he said, you know, unless somebody is there actively promoting racism and and bigotry and not there to act in community, that that was kind of his line. And you said you tended to agree with that. I mean, is that your explicit line i I guess the reason i ask and the reason that it's been kind of on my mind is that you know i was asking katie what her issue was specifically because she and ranya and and uh if many were kind of uh bad you know bad mouthing it a little bit and i wanted to know specifically why she was against 
anybody at the at the at the rally and and why you would down talk something when like you know 90 95% of the speakers you agree with and why don't you work in coalition with the 90 or 95% and not worry about the other you know 5 or 10% but she wanted insisted on doing an abstract on you know well if a kkk grandmaster was there and i guess my retort to that would be if a kkk grandmaster is willing to stand on a stage and preach a anti-war message next to a bunch of jewish people uh, a few black people you know pacific islander uh, a few hispanics that and isn't there to cause cause a problem and is there to actually spread an anti-war message i would say i guess yes to having a kk k grandmaster there and that there's probably at least in some regards some potential to to like like all forms of bigotry are learned right none of them are are from the womb so they can be unlearned and so maybe having people in coalition together uh can help unlearn some of those bigotries when they're working side by side with people that they believe in their in their minds that they hate and then they work together and there's i think there's a lot of power in that so i guess what's your thought on that do you have a specific red line on who can be involved in in a in a uh in an event like that before you draw the line no no just no no, I I don't have an explicit red line. I, I don't have like a journal entry where I've written down, I've like used a ruler to, to divide the page into and said like maybes and then like absolute no-goes if they show up. And honestly, like I, 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 my impression is not that Katie, like I didn't listen to the conversation you had with her, but my impression is not that Katie was bad mouthing the event. Well, her and Rania or, or and Vinny were on the Useful Idiots call-in two, two weeks ago. I mean, mm-hmm. it, they certainly were. I think that's undeniable. But what does that mean to bad about the event? Because I, I saw them... Or saying that it wasn't something that was worth, uh, worth, worth working with. That it was something to avoid. And Interesting. Not... I, I had a brief conversation with Katie at one point about this, and I felt like that's not what she said, but obviously people are able to, you know, change their minds or have shades of opinions. Right. I, my impression yeah, was right. that she thought that, you know, you know, in an ideal world, kind of like what Sabi's been saying, in an ideal world, if I were planning this, would the lineup be what it was? No. You know, do I wish it were done differently? Sure. But it, it, do I ultimately think it's worth supporting and that's a f- more good than bad? Yes. And even if I didn't, would I just stay out of it and not try to detract? Yes. That's that's kind of where I thought Katie was, and that's where I am. I, I honestly yeah. think that there's something a little bit perverse about how everyone needs to, like, go on the record about, like, who's in and who's out of the attendees of the war event. Well, like, well, it, it happened. You didn't hear me say anything negative about it. I'm, I'm glad it got. Accusing you of that. I, I think, no, no, I, think I know, but it's just like, what are we? I think the utility to my mind is 
you know, the left has been marginalized for a long time in this country. And to my mind, it's because of a purity, uh, an idea of purity on the left that is more important to say, I won't be in coalition with that person because they have deplorable views and to outwardly point uh, out that you aren't that person so that they can sleep at night and they can virtue signal outwardly. And that's, I think that's where I have a problem with people that were against the rally is that the movement's not big enough where we should start uh, picking and choosing and, and saying we won't work on something that we all believe in because there's certain people there that have bad views. Well, you know what? I, I think so, I don't think like, we should. Uh, I, I personally would not choose to detract from the rally. And I also would choose not to start beef with other members of the left community, podcasters or whatever, just because we have a difference of opinion about this thing. And I guess I'm not asking you to specifically, I'm mentioning it because I had this conversation with Katie and I'm not asking you to, to, to badmouth Katie or disagree with Katie in this instance. Uh, what I think what I'm trying to say is that this virtue signaling, I won't go to this because of that person, I think does more harm than good when a left politics has not had any wins in a very long time, continues to lose, despite the fact that uh, if you go down on issue-based polling in this country, we win on issue-based polling and have the right ideas and have popular support behind almost every one of our be it well, anti-war, I, I guess, corruption in Washington, war on drugs, whatever it yeah. be, Medicare for all. So Katie lives in New York, so I don't even know what the likelihood of her coming to this thing was in the first place so it, it all just kind specific, of specific i think i, I shouldn't even but, but let me let me just finish the aspect let me just finish because i think the 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 and a is in washington so yeah that's what i was gonna whatever. say if i could just finish go ahead if lives in washington dc i don't know if she went or not do you know that she if she went or not i do i i i was under the impression actually that she had gone based on social media but maybe that's mistaken so, like, again, like, if someone chooses not to go, if Afini decided personally in her life that she had other plans or that she there was a particular speaker who was, you know, homophobic or racist or something else that affected her identity personally and she was offended and chose not to go, I think that's a perfectly legitimate decision. And that's fine. And I respect that. And I don't have a, even one single word of criticism for her for not going. Everyone doesn't have to go to every event. And they're not my they're no they're not like crossed off the comrade list because they don't want to go to an event. Guess, my feeling is that you can have you're allowed to have any opinion you want about this thing. My personal choice is to try not to yuck other people's yum, even if I personally decline to participate in something. But the the goal is to stop trying to do pogroms where we <laughs> rat out folks and put them on bad opinion lists and oh your take isn't good and like why weren't you. If you're telling me that Katie or somebody was making such a big stink about the rally that it diminished turnout and it made it not as successful event as it could have that been, and you think they were an op and all that, well, that's one thing. But I don't get that's the impression that that's what you're saying. It's not what I was saying. Right. So I don't know. Like, okay, but if some people weren't that wild that about it, what's the big deal? Because why are you going to denigrate something that's righteous overall? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We, I just tried to establish that nobody denigrated it. Again, if someone chooses not to go for perfectly okay. legitimate reasons, like I have a problem with the Ritter We're fellow, or specifics, I... Brie, when I... And I should not have been specific about 
specific people. And there are a lot more people out there that did a lot more uh, uh, marginalizing of the rally. Absolutely. And, and to, so I don't want to focus on Rania, Katie, or or Affinity, though I mentioned them and I shouldn't have. I think the point I'm trying to make is that there was a lot of discussion from people on the left that marginalized the show, the out, uh, the, the crowd there. And I think that that's a huge negative for the left and shows why we're going to continue to be marginalized and put to the side and why we will never win on any of these things. I think well, that's the overarching you know, I point. appreciate that. And if you want to bring up some specific example of some people who were doing that, I'm happy to talk about it. But I would rather talk about positive things. I loved hearing that apparently Chris Hedges gave a great speech. I am looking forward to potentially amplifying it once I finally get my ears on it. I look forward to whatever is planned next, whether, whether it's something it. with workers strike back or whatever. And I look forward to attending some of these events and continuing to be in coalition with members of my community like Katie Hopper and Afini. All right. And that's good. I mean, and that's positive. And we're, we can just take, take a W and be positive. I'm not sure know? it was a W though, was it? But anyway, the, the protest. Yeah. I, I, think I thought it was a good uh, thing to happen. I don't know. I mean, I agree that it was a good thing to happen. I wish that it was 10,000 people and not two or 3,000 or 1,000 or whatever it was. And I, the point that I'm making is that without getting into specific people, there's a lot of people on the left that specifically went after that rally because there's people they don't like. And it's like, why don't you just not worry about the people you don't like and focus on the positive part of the rally, which is that... 80, 90, 95, 98% of the people there you like and you agree with the message, and why are you trying to hurt uh, an anti-war rally? Like, that's the entire point. Sure, but that goes both ways. But that goes both ways. We can't be specific. Here, I'll be specific. Code pink and not allowing Medea Benjamin. Right, but that goes both ways. Excuse me, Chris. That goes both ways. If Code pink's objection is to Ritter... Who look? I, I I really take Parenti's point about the nature of the allegations and that maybe it was a setup and that there have been many people who have been set up in the past. And I'm certainly not going to sit here and go through the man's, you know, case file and try to be Miss Detective. I don't know. So I'm not weighing in. But I also think that if there's a world where there's a big anti-war organization that has a single condition about a single person who has a genuinely checkered, like you can say that was, you know. Uh, an inaccurate uh, conviction, but a convicted child predator or whatever the charge is, is a pretty big flag for a lot of folks who aren't going to want to look for it. And if, if simply not having that one man talk that we're, we're like, let's not pretend like people were like, Oh, speak? I don't like Rand Paul. Wait, but did he speak? But wait a minute. No, I'm going to finish this, Chris. He, but did he speak? I know Chris, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to finish okay. this. Let's not act like, Let's not act like people are like, oh, I don't like Rand Paul because he's a libertarian, so I'm not going to come. No, the criticisms weren't the idea of people being ideologically diverse. I didn't see people complaining about, like, Tulsi Gabbard being there, for instance. I saw people complaining about, wait, specifically, what's his face? Um, Jackson Hinkle, because they believe he's not actually anti-war and that undermines the credibility of the rally. And Ritter. And my understanding was the Code Pink stuff was mostly about Ritter. And so if Code Pink could have brought this big crowd, but for Ritter... And Ritter ultimately ended up stepping down anyway. Then there's also a conversation. There's some onus on the on the planners of the event about where they should compromise and what's good for the benefit of the of the movement. Right? It goes both ways. 
I just still come down on the, if you agree with 95, 98%, you want to make an argument about one guy and still go and support it and show support for it or not go and show support for it. That's one thing. But to actively harm a, a, a anti-war rally, one of the first of its kind on this war in this country, and the biggest one of its kind on this war in this country, uh, certainly Berlin had because it kind of feels like correct, correct me if I'm wrong did you call into Katie's show ask her how she felt about it she gave her uh, her honest response and then you accuse her of denigrating the event because you can't ask no, someone please. their opinion and then be mad when they say their opinion out loud on their like small call-in show no, she wouldn't give her. She wouldn't give her opinion. She engaged in an abstract conversation. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Prior, so, before I called in. So she's done what she want her to do, why, which is to not Katie's slag not the conference. Free. Katie's not here, and I've been asking to get away from the specific Katie conversation. I know she's your friend, and you're being protective of her. And no, I'm not being protective that. of Katie. I'm being. But it, it could be. It could be an anonymous stranger. This still doesn't make any sense, Chris. I have, got, you, I have asked to get away from this. Okay, okay want, pretend it's not I, Katie Halper. Contend it's a, a random stranger named Potted Plant, because that's what I'm looking at. And you called into Potted Plant show and said, Potted Plant, please, I'm begging you, tell me your opinion on this rally. And Potted Plant says, oh, I don't want to weigh in on the rally, but hypothetically, here's what I would be for and here's what I'd be against. And then you're big mad at Potted Plant for, cri- okay, for criticizing wait, a rally wait, that they actually didn't even want to bring story? up. You want me to litigate the whole story? You're, is that what you're asking me? I can do that. We, you got 10 minutes? I'll tell you the whole story. You want me no, to explain it's okay, to Chris. the timeline in sequence of what happened? <laughs> like, I can, but you are, like, I, I have asked to get away from the specifics of Katie Halper because she's your friend. And, and anytime <laughs> anybody brings up Marianne Williamson or Katie Halper, you are, you have. All right. Then Chris, with, Chris, if I'm so biased that you think that I'm being irrational because I'm such good friends with Katie and Marianne, then feel free not to ask me I, questions about this. But you've just I, done the exact same thing to me that you just did to Katie, which is I, to pry an opinion out of my mouth and then be mad at me because it's not your opinion. That's not what I said. I think we agree on we agree on who uh, on not denigrating a movement, and we don't have to go and uh, and show up. But you didn't denigrate it, and I agree with you on that. So I don't think that I've coaxed an opinion from you and then bashed you for it after I asked you for your opinion. That's actually I think you should listen back to the last ten or fifteen minutes of our conversation afterwards and and realize that that's exactly not what i said brie to be honest with you all right That's you you, you didn't you weren't mad at my opinion because i substance well for one i declined to give one I, you asked me if i had a a, a, a list about litmus test a red line and i said no right which, and i declined which, which to weigh I in agree with you on. I <laughs> and it sounds to me it sounds to me like that. katie like what katie said was well i don't want to weigh in either on this but hypothetically no, but if it were different situations that's not what happened. That's and that's not what I said. Her and Rania and Affini were bad mouthing it. I got in about ten callers later. Rania and Affini were gone. I asked Katie specifically, and she was maybe the least denigrating of it between the three of them. But she was engaging with them and not sticking up for the for the for the movement. And I asked her why. And that's so to say that she didn't say anything bad. She did. That so your point is is moot. I would encourage you to go back to useful idiots from uh, uh, two 
two Mondays or two weeks ago this past Monday, and you can listen to it. It's there. It's there for everybody to All listen right. to. I confess so, that I'm probably good on that. That's not what I said. And and so you want to put words in my mouth? Then, but that's because that's not what I said. He said something. I called her and asked her for specifics on why she was saying what she was saying about the anti-war rally, and she uh, wanted to run a, a thought exercise about wh- where's the red line. So, All right. Well, I'm sorry you didn't like Katie's thought that. exercise. I hadn't pre-thought. Well, I was asking for specifics and not a thought exercise, not a thought experience. I'm sorry that Katie didn't deliver exactly what not, you were asking I, I for her to deliver. To get away from it. I've, I've asked you for 10 or 15 minutes to get All away right, from so we can get away from it. I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I appreciate yeah, you calling you. in, Chris. We good can get away from it. Thank, thanks for calling in. All right, Ike, what's on your mind tonight? You with us, Ike? No? All right. Um, Ike, if you change your mind or just figuring out the unmute and I see you at the end of the queue, I'll pull you up next. Maria, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, sorry, Ike. I'll, I'll bring you from the end of the queue. I see you back there. I see you. Just come back in the end and I'll call you up after Maria. Maria, what's on your mind? Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Uh, yeah, so I just want to say I, I really, really loved the... Uh, episode you did with uh, your professor Hansen or I'm so glad I've just been on it and like a rose colored cloud uh, for like hours after finishing that that conversation I just so enjoyed going down memory lane and relearning those lessons he's just been such a valuable resource to me over the years yeah no I've been trying to get like everyone I know to listen to it even though it's super long so it's been kind of difficult for me to convince people like <laughs> to sit down sorry no no i mean i i have listened to it myself like three times because um yeah i don't know there was a lot that was like really just sort of i don't know put things in perspective in a way that like even if it wasn't totally brand new information still mm-hmm. really to, like clarify things in a different context mm-hmm like I think the um the just world like thing about how mm-hmm. we you know are so really like wanting as sort of humans or in our society at least to believe that things are like happening yeah. to people for mm-hmm. their own you know because of what they do like really sort of like I was listening to this um I'm a big like I've been a fan of Vlogbrothers on YouTube for like ages. What are vlog? uh, What's vlog brothers? Oh, it's Hank and John Green's like YouTube channel that they've been doing back and forth. They put out videos once a week to each other, kind of. Mm. But it's um, they actually just did. They have this whole project for awesome thing that is a huge charity project that they just did like last weekend or something. Hmm. Um, Anyway, that's a lot. I really love their community and that whole thing. I think they're really fun and sort of wholesome resources um Mm. but uh no he uh, john green just his most recent video was on um i think it was titled something like the limits of empathy Mm. and he was kind of talking about you know how uh how it is that we're sort of like the limits of just being unable to care for you know all of humanity the way that we care for the people closest to us and how that sort of allows us to 
not go crazy from the fact that so many atrocities are sort of happening and so many people die all the time um, and all this. And one of the things he kind of brought up was just that it sort of ties into the way that we, you know, look at illness, both mental and like physical illness with people Mm. and that we sort of want to like justify these things as being like products of something the person did themselves. Yeah. If someone gets cancer, oh, did they smoke? Yeah, exactly. Did they exercise? Because you want to believe it couldn't happen to you. Yeah. And, and just like, yeah, that's sort of, and I, I was sort of talking because my older sister is her best friend um, has type one diabetes. Mm. And so she posts a lot about, you know, and does a lot of sort of um, really tries to inform and talk about uh, type one diabetes a lot because it is kind of overlooked in the whole discussion, I think, a mm-hmm. lot of times. But one of the things that that sort of makes me think about all the time now, or just sort of really helped like played into our conversation about that was just that like, yeah, how strong our sort of interest in like, especially with diabetes, like how central that sort of idea of like, well, you somehow deserve it because you like ate badly or mm-hmm. whatever. And like, just how difficult it is for us to sort of examine or accept things. This is like, it's not, it's not even just that like, we don't want to accept or acknowledge that these things could happen to us and our family members, mm-hmm. but that we don't want to deal with the sort of moral responsibility mm-hmm. of the reality that like there are these systems that we're all contributing to just by mm-hmm. like accept like living within them and sort of perpetuating them just by you know mm-hmm. that it's like with the covid you know. stuff and the diabetes too it was well you know covid's only a pr- really a problem if you're one of these high risk groups one of them being people who have diabetes or people who are right. obese and they're like, well, that's their fault. That's a thing that you did to get that way. You know, 70% of America is overweight, but never mind. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a way to, you're completely right, not to have to, to have any kind of moral obligation or feel like there's any responsibility personally or as a public policy measure for those people because they, quote unquote, did it to themselves. Yeah, no, it's it's really... It's, yeah, it's it's almost, I think, sort of remarkable how far we've, like, or how much success people have had, even just, like, small bits of success over time and, like, getting sort of larger moral objectives through and, like, being willing to sacrifice for these greater goals, considering how much it's, like, is going or, like, how much of us, how able humanity is to like really sort of talk ourselves out of moral obligation or ignore it in a yeah. lot of ways. And, and the piece of that, that was so interesting to me from class. Um, he had so many charts and slides that were very useful, <laughs> um, but he had this one that was, you know, showed, you know, the just, when the just world hypothesis fails, when we are no longer able to justify that the obvious inequities that we see in the world are because of people's moral feelings. It's their own fault. Then the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be, we believe it should be is so wide that it forces us to have some kind of 
change, that's when revolutions happen. And that's when there's a revolutionary moment, which is why I'm always so focused on talking about exposing contrasts. Our goal, it seems to me, at least my goal and, and someone who's in the comm space and the media space is to make it so obvious that there's a gulf between the representations that are made by our politicians and what we expect of them between what could the way we could be living and the way we're choosing to be, to, to live or the way our leaders are choosing for us to live. Um, and to really, you know, when something like East Palestine happens, when something like COVID happens, you know, when we see that the government can do things like roll out mass vaccinations and provide those things for free and send medical testing kits to our houses and, you know, put into effect eviction moratoriums and let people live where they live. They can do all that. Give child tax credits. They can do it. They can have child poverty and they don't. Those are these moments to that are supposed to like jostle people's just, just world hypothesis and say, you, you've had this whole uh, rationale, this whole edifice in your head about how, well, kids are in poverty and that's just the way it has to be. And that's just the way the world is. And, it's not our fault if their parents are miscreants and ne'er-do-wells. And, you know, it just, the, we have to have this many people in prison because that's just the nature of the world. And crime rates just have to be this high because that's the nature of the world. And gun violence has to be this high. And that's why comparing to other countries and comparing to other historical periods and pointing out that CEOs in the 1950s only made 30 times more than their workers instead of 300 times more than their workers the way they do now. It's the goal of all of that is to try to, to, to make that gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be so big and so obvious that some kind of change is forced to happen. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, the, the COVID is really actually like, I, um, I live in Sweden for, uh, school. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, it was really weird to see like, because Sweden also had a very odd response to COVID, I would say. Uh, mm, how so? Compared, well, it was it was like very open in comparison to a lot of like I think what people's like these countries that people were comparing the U.S. to, or sort of like um, in general. And there was there was a real like um, there's been a one of the things that I think is so worrisome actually politically here in Sweden is just that there's been this, it feels like on a lot of these like welfare nations in Europe, there's been this real sort of lack of understanding that these, yeah, like welfare programs and systems need to be like, you can't just put them into place and then expect that they're going to function uh, indefinitely just the way that they are and that they are not like something that you should constantly be working on to make better and like not, you know, just let continually sort of, because it seems like there's just been this track of letting these things like grow so that like the debate here now, which has been like this huge debate seemingly like the entire time I've been here is just that there's all these problems with the healthcare system. Like people have all these issues, which I mean, again, coming from the US, I'm just like, there's free healthcare people. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't see many problems, but, um, but no, I mean, I, I understand that people have concerns about wait times and like lack of, um, especially for like 
certain types of surgeries and things like that and whatnot and like a lack of especially like staffing to hospital like sweden has a pretty small population for what is a fairly large country when it comes to like land although not a lot of the country is livable because it's Mm -hmm. so dark and cold um Mm -hmm. so most people live in like a few major cities but then there's a bunch of like sort of much more rural areas and because of that there's a lot of issues of people having access to health Mm. like hospitals that are fully staffed with like um and stuff like that because the doctors don't want to work out there anyway Mm. um and there's so there's been a lot of issues with those types of things and the debate seems to really be around this like either you know we privatize the system more and like because blah 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 they can do it more efficiently and like you know whatever like um those ridiculous arguments are um but and then the other side is like well not like oh we can like fix these problems but like we just need to put more money into this system like that's kind of and like i'm not against like more funding necessarily i just think Mm -hmm. that there's like just a lack of willingness to like have a conversation around how you could make this system function much more effectively in the type of society that like you're like that Sweden is currently and sort of deal with these problems head on instead of just having this like idea of like, well, either we privatize it or we just keep like pouring more and more money into a system that's not doing as well as like it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that privatizing the healthcare system is going to incentivize a for-profit hospital to build in the middle of nowhere that services like three people uh-huh. in a tiny town <laughs> is <laughs> hilarious, but okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah. And, and you think I like, I also feel like the argument should just be over after COVID because one of the things that like the sort of big like dilemma that people that actually became a big story here was just that because so much of the um, like elder care facilities uh, had been uh, are already private um, and had sort of like that sector had been privatized previously, they actually were hit really, really hard. And a lot of old people, unfortunately, like died in much higher numbers than in countries, you know, our neighboring countries like Norway and Denmark. Mm. Um, And so it was a big, yeah, it was, it was a big like debate, public debate for a while because of just like how significant the differences were and how clear it was that like this sort of reality of our nursing homes being the way structured, the way they were had like created a a scenario in which case like a lot of people had died. Mm unnecessarily um but it doesn't i mean like yeah i don't know i just i feel like there's just not a lot of uh like the left i i i'm i'm slightly hopeful now that like the left party is gonna kind of get some of their mojo back here because the uh now that the right has taken over the government for like the first time in such a long time um because i don't know i feels like maybe they're just gonna do better as like a it's it's just yeah there's been a lack of leadership from the left i think in a way that i think it's gonna force people back to get get their act together because in america the right takes over and because we've never or at least not for a long time have had like functioning left policies the right gets in they make existing social safety net policies worse and then they point to how bad things are functioning as a justification to get more conservatives in whereas i feel like 
there's a world and a country that has a more robust and functioning social safety net and norms to say it's been working. Everyone thinks they have a problem with the healthcare. Conservatives come in and actually ruin the healthcare system. But because there's a recent history of things having worked and been good, people are like, oh shit, actually, <laughs> let's get some lefties back in here. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I think just in general, the, I mean, obviously the political parties have been more left here. And I think it helps too that the sort of main, this like new wave of like, you know, um, far right sort of uh, politics here is being sort of shepherded under a party that has very, it's just, this is also pretty like, it leads to a lot of controversial debates, but has in my, I'd say factually, actually, just by, yeah, hard facts that they have very um, intense direct ties to like neo-Nazi roots Mm -hmm. um, to the point where like, I mean, you know, for a while, like my, my mom, she's Swedish and that's sort of why I was, you know, able to, or came here for college. But she, mm-hmm. um, when she was younger, there was actually like a whole fight over like Sweden being able to reclaim the Swedish flag because it had been really like appropriated by these far right, uh, neo-Nazi yeah. fascists who, you know, so it was actually like such a strong symbol for them that it was like you that really represented like, yeah, it was it was an interesting like whole section of Sweden's history. But um, that's wild to have to reclaim your own uh, national flag. Um, yeah. Yeah. They've got. And, think- yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. I just yeah. I, I just was remembering that. um that Trevor Noah clip you played of, you know, Obama talking about the way that sort of Scandinavian, um, the socialism and like that whole thing works. And I, yeah, I mean, there's just something very, you just get the feeling that like, there's this lack of like that people have this, I don't know. There's something a little bit, I think, there's always been something sketchy to me about this, like trying to mix socialism and capitalism the way that like a lot of these Scandinavian countries seem to have been trying to walk this line of like having strong, like, because there doesn't seem to be a willingness to go further to the left and instead just like trying to Mm. hold this, like, you know, like this welfare state, but also like a, you know, pro growth capitalist, like, Mm -hmm system that I just don't think like I think this is sort of the beginning of the like time where you're really seeing the stress of like the realities that those things can't fully coexist in the way Mm -hmm. that they've been trying to make them work and that like eventually there's going to have to be like a real decision about whether or not you're going to take socialism seriously as like the move which in itself was sort of meant to be sort of more of a transitionary thing to like even further like fully Mm -hmm you know, sort of more communist principles of really, you know, getting rid of the, um, you know, full sort of distribution of the means of production. But um, yeah, Yeah. yeah. that's interesting. I, I mean, are there, is the Scandinavian left, do they talk in those terms? I mean, we know how neutered and ineffectual our left is, but is there a real left that says, okay, like we are the shining model for, social democracy in the world and we should continue to lead. And the next step is 
communism. Next step is, you know, there is, there's an actual articulation of a, of a left movement that exists outside of like Berkeley's campus. Um, I mean, yeah, to a, I wouldn't say that like it's anywhere near as, um, sort of, you know, uh, Deadly or like revolutionary as I think it needs to be, which is I think part of the problem. Like I think there's been because there's been this sort of like you know welfare system that's been in place and things like have been going sort of fairly well or whatever for a while. There's been this sort of real flattening of any like feeling of need to push further. Instead, it's like people have had the language and sort of this you know. But it's much more like, you know, people discussing, yeah, these like politics, like in a coffee shop, like with some sort of like, yeah, that sort of intellectual like flair of like, oh, aren't we like, you know, so sort of smart, but like everything's fine. So there's no real like, like urgency. But I think the urgency is kind of, it's been made clear sort of in the last few years has been there's been this real like rise in like the far right and also a, um, like also all of these like, severe sort of real like i sweden is like and i think a lot of these european nordic countries who've sort of been able to pass off their you know oh we're so helpful like we're you know so free and we're so peaceful and we're so loving and kind and all these good things has really been questioned in the terms of like this refugee you know crisis mm -hmm. and i mean sweden especially has had like Large, I mean, we had, you know, for a brief moment there, there was all that sort of good press about Sweden having open borders and like 25 or like, you know, just letting everyone in in 2015. And then, you know, there was quickly, pretty quickly, they were like, actually, we're not doing this anymore. And uh, the backlash has been pretty intense with like this, yeah, real rise and, and sort of like, I think this comes back to this like reality that at least in the States, it feels like to me, there's so, so much more of an ability to like, actually confront like even with the lack of discussions around things like systemic racism and like the just ridiculous like insanity of like the discussions in a lot of cases like there still seems like there's so much more of an, an ability to actually like even start the conversation whereas here it feels like everyone's going around with this idea of like well we're just already past that like oh, let me tell you yeah as someone who grew up overseas and has many international friends from, let's call it the global north in Australia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the European bits, the white people bits. There is such a weird, egotistical, maniacal commitment to their own above it all this about race that is so mm -hmm. delusional it's painful yeah, yeah it's so i was just talking to my mom about this you know she worked for the un for 17 years like it's so delusional with these crazy pants people say she coordinated um uh psychosocial welfare staff members and was a focal point for women for the un and dealt with all of these cultural conflicts national hierarchies gender conflicts all of that within the within the security department and the, she was like people will come in and say the craziest thing, oh, we don't have racism in France. We don't have racism in Canada. We don't have racism in Sweden. Like, shut up, you crazy kooks. In fact, it's even worse because you're all in collective denial and you walk around pretending like black people don't even exist and you think that's a compliment. It's so, it's like the weirdest gaslighting. And I got to tell you, as an American grew up in those environments, it was so exhausting to have to listen to that all the time. 
But here's my quick hot take before I have to go and take the last caller. I've yeah. been rewatching Girls and got to say, it's a great show. <laughs> <laughs> and what is so funny to me is like watching Girls episodes from like 2010 or whatever. They're making jokes about discomfort with changing norms. You know, her dad comes out as gay in one of the later seasons. She's like, I'm not homophobic, but it's my dad. And I don't want to think about his, you know, sex, like no matter what. And like, she's clearly struggling with some of it is a little homophobia. and some uh-huh. of it, But she's like a good liberal character. And she's making a joke about how even liberalism confronts the edges of its own like tolerance and understanding. And, you know, we're just all trying to do our best and grow when the world is moving faster than we are. And the jokes, like they're good. Like it, it, it's honest. Like we're, it, it, and I was reflecting on how what's going on with conservatives right now feels like they're just in 2010. And mm. instead of making kind of lighthearted jokes about it, the way that the girls did, they're just being really mean. <laughs> So like there's a scene in Girls that I just watched where she goes into a coffee shop. No, one of the other characters, he goes into a coffee shop. He he owns a coffee shop. A new hipster one opens across the street. He's mad. He goes in there and he's arguing with them because their customers keep coming into his store to steal his lid, coffee lids. And he says to one of the he re- refers to one of the people behind the counter as he and then they turn around and it appears to be someone who's maybe like a cis woman with a shaved head. But then they keep talking and it, they, they go by they, which is like really out there in 2010. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and so the character who's like a good guy, you know, is like, she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I did, what? Like, he's like confused and it's like funny. And the joke is on him for like not getting it. But also the joke is a little bit on how, you know, pompous and like self-righteous the, the person behind the counter is. And like, it, it was a it, it was a good scene, you know. And it deals with all of the discomfort that everyone's dealing with as we move through a transition period in society. But instead of just like you're, you're and it was just, I don't know, it struck me because it's like all of us have been there. We're all allowed to be in this moment. But there's something about conservatives who are acting like they're the only ones who are confused and they feel so shouted down for being a little bit slow on the uptake or trying to figure out changing norms and they feel like they're being harassed and like maybe they are being harassed and maybe because they are behind the ball, there is less tolerance for not getting the they thing or whatever it is. But it's like, can't you just, why did I bring this up? Because you were saying something about um, people's willingness to talk about racism and acknowledging the problems in society and acknowledging that it's it's not a perfect world. And it's like, it is hard. I want to acknowledge, I said this a little bit in my radar today. It is hard and we've all been through it. And some people were earlier on the uptake and some people are later on the uptake. But I really do wish we were in, the, in, a, in a place where we could all just talk about this stuff. Yeah. And acknowledge, acknowledge that we have a ways to go. Because this like weird version of like even economic colorblindness or whatever you want to call what's going on where people, where, people, where people in Scandinavia are apparently sitting around saying everything's perfect. We don't have to change. It's just a cope. And it's regressive and it's getting in the way of progress yeah no 100 percent. all right i'll let you go and i'm going to take ike and then we're going to go and close our rings yeah thanks for <laughs> taking my call and keep the faith keep the faith all Bye. right where'd you go ike 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 where'd ike go oh there he is hey ike how you doing can you hear me 
Loud and clear. Oh, shit. Cool. Oh, hi. I'm first time caller. Oh, welcome, yeah. Mike. Hey. Uh, yeah, no, I like started listening to your podcast. Uh, I want to say like six months ago, maybe. And I just moved to like Seattle and I, oh, okay. actually before I go on to that, like, did you ever think about going to Howard? Like at all, ever? Um, well, both my parents went to Howard and I okay, was born cool. at Howard University Hospital. Oh shit! Um, okay, <laughs> I was I went to the best school for a short period of time and then like dropped out because I hated it and went and did major and majored in computer science and it's like the best decision I ever made. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I I can't say that I I I mean I didn't apply, so I I'm not mm-hmm. going to sit here and say that I, I considered it that seriously. Um, no, no, but no. not for any real reason other than, you know. No, that's that's totally fine. Like your both your parents went there, so that that counts. That that counts, <laughs> that counts. double. That counts okay. double. <laughs> right. Um. I I I really loved. I wanted to start off by saying that I really loved the podcast where you talked to your old professor. Like, oh, I'm I've, so glad that you guys liked him as much as I did. Oh yeah, no, that was absolutely fantastic. And the thing is that, like, I guess. I had an assumption or at least a stereotype of law professors, um, especially like law professors at places that weren't HBCUs, mm-hmm. right? And law and economic professors really, that they were really conservative, right? And that's kind of judged by how I heard a lot of people at HBCUs complain about um, the wider economics community and the wider law community outside mm-hmm. of HBCUs. And I don't know if that was your experience, but... I thought the guy was just like, it completely came out left field. I guess. Well, he was an anomaly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think, I mean, I had this, I have got this ongoing fight with um, one of my colleagues, one of the producers that, um, or one of the, um, yeah, producers, right. Lighting producer. I I don't know. I don't know what words are anymore. Uh, at, at, um, that was fine. at rising because, you know, my view is that these institutions are conservative and Very. he's like, they're liberal because, mm-hmm. you know, young kids like gay people, <laughs> therefore they're liberal. You know what I mean? Like there's this right. weird way that right. like cultural li- liberalism is, it's like the college doesn't care. Republicans don't care if you like oh. gay. I mean, it's, that's not, that's not the end game. The end game is that they're spending, there was an article just this week about how they spend these millions and billions of dollars of like unaccounted for money to affect the right. curriculum so that yes. you learn a conservative economic theory and a conservative legal theory and a conservative right. public policy. Mm-hmm. And you're learning about broken windows policing and you're learning about mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So you grow up and you become a, a, a yuppie. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't care if you're a yuppie who has a rainbow mm-hmm. flag outside of your house or a yuppie that puts Black Lives Matter sign on your front yard. None of that shit matters. Like they right. fundamentally want you to be economically conservative and that's what colleges indoctrinate you in. Exactly. And it's, uh, that's exactly, so I have a lot of conservative friends from, I grew up in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. So I grew up in that kind of like super conservative environment. And it's just really mind boggling to me how they think that people in California and Seattle and Washington and all these like liberal areas, right? Um, All these like high, like even at Berkeley and all these nice institutions, right? Harvard, Berkeley, Columbia, all these places are super, super, uh, what do you call it? woke or left leaning because you know they're accepting of my of like social minorities right Mm -hmm. and i just i can't help but think i i just that's not like they they don't care about that they and honestly they wouldn't be so rich 
right? I'm hoarding all of this money. If they like, it's, it's just a veneer, right? And I work at like Microsoft, right? And mm-hmm. it is interesting how open-minded the culture is in Microsoft. And don't get me wrong, I love the company culture, but it is all centered around money, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's no like the way people think about economics, the way think about the people think about business. It is like straight up the shit that you learned in like high school and maybe like an econ one or two class, right? Uh, in college, like all, all that stuff, like it, it, it's almost like some of the stuff is pulled right out of like basic economics from Thomas Sowell. That's how mm-hmm. people think, right? And it's 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 really infuriating to me because it's it's like um, it, it really seems like the only difference between the left and right in America, right? Or when I say left and right, I'm talking about like the mainstream liberal left, mm-hmm. right? In America, is that one's nicer to gay people, one's nicer to black people, or at least you know. Play mm-hmm. his lip service. I mean, you know, I'm sure that's like a cliche thing that people have said all the time. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen the meme where it's like the difference between Republicans and Democrats is one will have hashtag BLM in their in their bio. There's no difference outside of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really, really infuriating. Um, but there's one thing I did want to talk to you outside of the professor, uh, outside of that podcast, which I really loved. If you can do more podcasts like that, That'd be amazing. Um, I'll do my best. Please. <laughs> but um, I do want to talk about kind of, I don't know if this is something that happens on the left, but I spend a lot of time trying to understand conservatives and people, American conservatives and people on the right. And there seems to be this like religion of contrarianism. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but there's a kind of a knee jerk reaction to be skeptical of anything at all. Right. And you see people who um, I don't know else to put it. And I don't know if like this is something you've seen or like have gotten a sense of because I know like you're kind of in that alternative news space. Right. But Mm -hmm. it does. I I, like whenever I hear things from conservatives, there's kind of this sense that um, that they're they will always be proven right at some point in time. Right. Like, uh, I, I mean, to use COVID as a good example, right? Um, recently, the I'm, I remember you talked about in Rising with the whole, uh, the study coming out showing that natural immunity, right, is stronger than two shots of, mm-hmm. I believe, Pfizer, right? Mm-hmm. And that just blew up the whole Substack space. That was a big deal. People wrote a lot of articles on it, right? And to me, I... I guess it was weird because I was living in a place where I felt like that that's not surprising to me per se because well, I, I mean I the reason that it blew up was because the previous position wasn't kind of a new that was taken by the mainstream mm-hmm. wasn't a neutral oh science might prove that this is true you know mm-hmm. scientists are on the case to figure out if natural immunity is a thing right it was absolutely not. If you talk about natural immunity, you're an anti-vaxxer and you're discouraging people from getting boosters and you're, you're killing people and you're burdening hospital staff and you're like mm-hmm. a bad, immoral person. And now you can make the case that absent any evidence that natural immunity was effective, mm-hmm. that promoting it in an irresponsible way was having those bad social effects. It was irresponsible right. to say promote right. it. Right. But, you know, that's a difficult line. And it's the same with, like, let's say, lab leak theory. 
Right, like, right. The, the, the revelation here from what the Department of Energy and FBI, it's not that, oh, we conclusively prove lab leak theory. It's that, well, we're validating that it is possible, perhaps even more likely than not, that lab leak was the origin. Right. Now, that is not some huge slam dunk either, but because the posture of the mainstream media was, if you say the words lab leak theory, you're a crazy propagandist who hates well, Chinese people. Right. Exactly. Well, then, of course, if you get any validation from a mainstream credible source, like the Department of Energy, let's say, you're going to do a victory lap. And so right. look, I actually am sympathetic to conservatives who are taking that victory lap right now because they're only able to do so because of the kind of draconian approach that the mainstream media took. And mm-hmm. I think it's a lesson to be learned, to, 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 to have a little bit of a softer touch when you are in a realm of unknowing mm-hmm. <laughs> in genuine scientific exploration and hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no? I, th- no, 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 no. That's, that's, that was great. Like I, I guess I had more to say, but that really kind of put to bed a lot of the things I wanted to say. No, I, I definitely think that makes a lot of sense and gives me a lot more insight into kind of like the more contrarian viewpoint. Yeah. I um, don't think, look, I don't think that they are especially uh, uh, contrarian. Like, my, wanna, uh, my hesitation is also that like, I think a lot of people who feel victimized are very paranoid and I, and I say it as a black person. Right. And I have a lot right. of respect for that kind of paranoia that comes from having been wrong so often. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't live in a world where you've been Tuskegee experimented on and the right. CIA is putting drugs in your communities and assassinating mm-hmm. your leaders. All of that can't be going on. And then you're also mad because you have a, a kind of crazy uncle who thinks that, you know, there's birth control in the bur- in the water or something, you know, because like, yeah, honestly, yeah. in America, anything could be true. <laughs> no, no, it's, no, that's, that's so that's so true. Like, I, I have uh, I guess like I have a bit of a personal attachment to it because my my partner's aunt died mm. because of COVID misinformation. Mm. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it was very. Yeah, no, actually, not just her aunt. Like a lot of her extended family died because of COVID misinformation, right? So, and what do you just, mean that they didn't want to get vaccinated because they, they felt like refused to get vaccinated? They refused to get treatment. They didn't. They refused to wear masks. Masks. Mm. Right? It was, and they live in New York, right? And it was just, it was just really, really awful. And mm-hmm. I'm so um, sorry that happened. Was this yeah. before? So this was after vaccines, obviously, because, you know, uh, so some were after vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them were before they refused to mask up. Um, they, they, you know, they, they often listened to the whole thing that COVID wasn't real. Like at first it was really this COVID didn't exist at all. Right? <sighs> the, yeah. The media was lying. Right. And then when the first person died, people started, you know, waking up a little bit more and it's more from COVID wasn't real to like COVID came from a lab and is, you know, is made by the Chinese. Like half of, half of the people believe that. And if you believe that, wouldn't you want to protect yourself from it? Right. That's what you think. You know, that, that'd be like the logic of how I would do it, of of how I would think too. Right. But no, they're they're like, I'm not going to get, affected by this Chinese virus, right? It was like they had some immunity. And I don't know if you heard this at all as a black person, but in the black community, there was, there was this idea that it was only killing non-black people. Yeah, I remember that phase. Okay, cool, cool. So yeah, that was the thing. And a lot of, I, I would say that like idea took out like two or two or three more more of, uh, of her relatives. Like, I mean, you know, they were, they were older, right? They were in the 70s. But it's kind of, 
it's dark. It's dark and really, it's really hard to like talk about. But um, it's it's just it, that's kind of where I got the sense that like it's it's paranoia. I guess seeing as paranoia makes a lot more sense than seeing it's just kind of a. I guess it, it's the same thing as a religion of contrarianism, kind of the same terminology or sorry, same idea or same concept behind it because it's just like a paranoia within the black community. Now, I, again, like it seems like there's also a lot of paranoia outside the black community too. Yeah, because there's this kind of victim, I I don't want to use the words victim culture, because like obviously conservatives use that to imply that there's no real victimization happening. Right. But like there's this kind of grievance culture that is Mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. you know, now everywhere, like conservatives have really exploited this. They're after you. They're suppressing you. They don't believe you. They're Mm -hmm. banning you from Twitter. They're, and by the way, like it's again, it's not untrue. A lot of it is true. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's exactly, exactly, exactly. A lot of it is credible. Like, I don't know if you heard about the whole thing with Airbnb banning people that are associated with people who are banned. It's like, no, I didn't hear about that. Okay. Airbnb has been long time problematic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's a lot of these, um, there's a lot of power in corporations. Right. And I think conservatives are very keen on that and they're very keen about that. Right. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I often feel like, and I, I remember you said this one time on the podcast that the left is both for the left and for the right. You know, there's a fervor on the right that would be very sympathetic to a lot of um, the criticisms that people on the left make, especially when it comes to corporations and mm-hmm. the CIA and FBI, you know, mm-hmm. which I, I want to, for a record, I really agree with your take on Marjorie Taylor Greene and what she said about the FBI. Because mm-hmm. I, I thank you. Yeah, yeah. I just you're like, you're one of few. LOL. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I said, and the funny thing is that we the single t- the first time you said that, right? I was like, finally, someone else with a larger platform actually agrees with my intuition about this, right? Because it's the left has to make. I guess politics is really strange, bedfellows, right? It is not even bedfellows. It's just like a it's a credibility yeah. issue, right? Like, it, when I'm on Rising, like today, I, I was like, I wrote this radar and like. It's skewering this conservative kid at Brook at, at Princeton who's mad because he's like, I'm not allowed to be free at Princeton in my speech. Okay, and the examples he gives is like he brought up an opinion in class and somebody disagreed with him. Like that's it. That's, that's the example. Yeah, that's embarrassing. Like he was like, I like colorblind ideology, and some oh like person god. of color was like, I that makes me feel invisible. And he's like, Oh my god, you called me a racist, and like that's the whole thing. That's okay. So. You know, I, I, I'm like, I, I'm mad at this. I want to talk about this, but I know I need to talk about it in a way that doesn't make people feel like I'm pretending like there aren't some overreaches that happen on campuses. Like there aren't some crazy things that get promulgated, like the Stanford list that says, you know, you can't say a bunch of stuff that All is like very thing, normal yeah. to say. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah, like yeah. some of that list is good and some of the list is bad, you know? Right, right. And, and how it's, and me agreeing with conservatives on stuff. You know, like me acknowledging that I was wrong on some of my early COVID takes. Like, okay, you guys were right about natural immunity and really letting them have that victory lap. It's like I I live to fight another day on reforming these railroad regulations. I live to fight another day on Medicare for all. I live to fight another day to do a radar on how we need to lift the Social Security um, tax uh, bracket. Right, you know? right, right, right. No, and, no. And so, like, if Marjorie Taylor Greene says something that's even a little bit right, I'm going to agree with that little bit. 
Because I seem like I'm not someone who's so ideologically driven that I'm not willing to just take a W. That's a, that's a really interesting position. I think that makes you stand out like heads and shoulders above a lot of other commentators, um, especially on the left. And I think like we've a lot of the other callers have mentioned this. There's a lot of purity culture, right? There's a lot of like, you know, the person that I support has to be like uh, as close to socialist Jesus as possible. <laughs> Yeah. That's, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of mentality, but at the end of the day like, you know, I like ideas matter more than than the individual person, at least in my head. And like if Marjorie Taylor Greene says something like you said, just even a little bit that I even a little bit agree with, right? Or at least her head's even in the right space, right? Which I think a lot of people on the right are by the way. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's an insane person who no, is not acting in good insane. faith, but right. I think that there are, the, the reason she says that stuff is because there's a genuine appetite for people who want real reform among conservatives. Right. So that's another lesson. Like, if I were writing a book like Nathan Robinson's, one of my lessons for talking to the right would be, remember that you're not talking to the person you're talking to. You're talking right. to their audience. Well, sometimes right. Robbie says things to me, and, you know, I love me some Robbie, mm-hmm. but sometimes he gets to saying things to me, and I literally just have to, like, come out of my body, pivot mm-hmm. and turn to the camera, and stop talking to him, and just remember that it's not about him. I'm talking to the audience. I'm right. not trying to convince right. Robbie Suave. I'm trying to convince the audience. Yeah, it's like a, it's a show, right? It's a spectacle. You're trying to talk. You, you're, you're there to perform. I guess that's, like, a really, maybe, like, a problematic way of framing it, but I think that's... Generally, that's how a lot of these debates or political conversations that are fed to an audience, I guess, should be, right? And that yeah. makes sense. Right. Um, okay. So I guess last thing, and you brought it up in last with the last caller, the colorblindness thing. I, I've been watching a lot of Thomas Chatterson Williams, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember you had a conversation with him. And I find him, I find like, I, I think he tries really hard to make a good colorblindness argument, right? Mm-hmm. I think what I struggle with is that he expects people of color, the marginalized people, to take the first step. And that's what really infuriates me because I find that a lot of, a, a lot of white people who like to see themselves as being purely colorblind aren't actually colorblind, right? In the same way that you, that you brought it up in the lot, yeah, the of color. course they're not. <laughs> right, right. Of course they're not. They're not. And Nobody's really colorblind not. unless you are blind. Right. And in right. which case, you probably still aren't colorblind because you can tell what race a lot of people are from their voice. Voice. Right. <laughs> right. No. Exactly. Exactly. No. I. I totally agree. And it's like, and, and and it's really infuriating because I think in America, especially in conservative circles, right, like you brought up, that it's everywhere, right? And someone has linked me like a Tom Sherrison Williams video about talking about race. And I just, I can't, I feel like, I don't, I don't know if you see it the same way. You can't really get past any of these things without some type of material equity or parity amongst. Yes. And, and yeah. Thomas, it, to his credit, I think has acknowledged that in some of our conversations and he has acknowledged that he hasn't, like he wants to get more into a class analysis in his writings. And I think that that yeah. would be really good for him. I think mm-hmm. that would be, I mean, I think, look, Thomas Chatterton Williams is my guilty pleasure. I, Secretly, really enjoy talking. Not so secretly, I really enjoy talking to him. Mm-hmm. I think that he is interesting and able to make good arguments for his opinions. That 
I disagree with, but they're like at least thoughtful arguments. Exactly. I think his kind of personal story and the kind of psychology behind maybe some of what he believes is mm-hmm. fascinating to me. And I right. very much hope to be able to hang out in Paris with him one day mm-hmm. and split a bottle of wine and talk about all his personal business and really get to the bottom of some stuff. <laughs> no, really, really. I, I think he's actually one of the few people in the whole I, he's one of the few people that actually are, is really, really thought, thoughtful when it comes to colorblindness idea. And also, I, I, though, what's his face? Um, Coleman Hughes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Coleman Hughes, I was listening. I'm only, I'm only like a quarter of the way through. But he had a great panel earlier this week um, with maybe three other people um, about this cancel culture stuff. And they're all conservative. And three out of four of them on this panel were so insightful. Right. Mm-hmm. Three, the three out of four were black conservatives. I think I don't know exactly how they identified, but I think they were all conservative, and they were all so thoughtful, and they genuinely seemed to be wanting to protect speech interests on ca- campuses, and they were making the point to the fourth person that like you. you you cannot like just because you don't like what teachers are doing, you don't get to have a centralized authority dictating what happens in the classroom because you're going to be mad when that person doesn't agree with you. You don't get to have dogma like you have to teach your own kids at home. And they were being very principled in a way. A lot of times these free speech people aren't principled. They just want their version of speech imposed on the kids. They don't actually want any kind of freedom or flexibility in the classroom. Uh-huh. And it was such a refreshing conversation to be listening to a panel of people, none of whom shared my politics, but who were fully making solid arguments about why they were opposed to a lot of these DeSantis and Rufo bills down in Florida and such. I was just about to ask, was that fourth person Christopher Rufo? Because he No, no, no. Like, it was some random okay. white guy. I didn't know him from Adam. Oh. I mean, I didn't know any of them except for Coleman from Adam. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I really struggle to listen to Christopher Rufo. No, no, <laughs> Rufo's no. ideas a lot. I just, it's... It, I, I understand, and I think I think that there are a lot of conservatives, especially black conservatives, right, um, that I've listened to personally, that are very much interested in free speech, and and I, you know, I understand they have a really vested interest, and they have a they have a vested interest in free speech to to say what they want to say, you know what I mean? Like it's a there's a kind of a they a lot of the time they kind of feel uh what's the word? There's like a power imbalance that they that. Well, yes, but like this is the point I made in my radar today. Like, I'm not going to deny that it must be hard in a college campus where most young people are socially progressive to be conservative. Of course, you have a minority opinion, and you know why I know it's hard because I also have a minority opinion. Right. I am a socialist, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, when I was in college back in the pre woke era. For me to say a word that I wouldn't have dreamed of saying like, oh, I don't think your analysis is intersectional or you're microaggressing me. I wouldn't have dreamed. Those words were around, but I would not have dreamed of saying that in class because everyone would have laughed me out of the room. Right. Like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like, no, I sat there quietly all through school. I'm not saying a goddamn thing while people actually microaggressed me and said racist shit to me constantly. And I just stayed quiet as a church mouse, kept my head down and got the fuck out of there. So don't like I'm not I'm not telling you that that's how it should be or that everyone should have to suffer because I suffered. But like I certainly wasn't writing op eds in the New York Times talking about how sad it was for me to be microaggressed in my classroom. That's absurd. 
Life is hard. Sometimes you're going to be in the minority opinion. Oftentimes you're going to have the minority opinion. And what I value is that those experiences taught me how to defend my beliefs, become a better debater and a better person and and be more able to articulate what I actually believe. And my conservative friends from college and law school are some of the smartest people I know because they had to commit to being able to defend their beliefs when they were the only ones that had their own back. And by sparring with those people, I got better and I valued those friends enormously. Mm-hmm. And instead of getting smart and sharpening his wit and, at Princeton, apparently this medieval studies major just spent all his time crying about it to the New York Times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, no, yeah, right. I just yeah, look, like you said. There's a there's a grievance. There's a there's a grievance culture. I I I can't think of a better word to use. There's a yeah. kind of grievance culture that exists on everywhere. I, I, it doesn't, it's not localized to any one part right. of the ideological spectrum. And this is, this is kind of like just world hypothesis. Like people feel bad. Life is hard. And instead of just being like, man, I guess I gotta like figure this yeah, out. Better, I guess right. I gotta, maybe I lost that argument because I was wrong. How about that? Right. right <laughs> or right. maybe I wasn't wrong. Maybe I do believe this, but I have to go read some stuff, give it some thought, and figure out why it is I'm right and what responses I do have to those counter arguments. Right. 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 No, that's that's a good point. That's guess, called learning. That's why you're right. in college. That's called right, growth. Right. <laughs> that's the whole point no. of you being there. No, that makes complete sense. No, I, I I definitely agree. I guess like to to end my to to end this call. I just I was curious. For someone that is outside of college, that graduated, and I'm about to like do my master's now mm-hmm. in computer science, I that that podcast really got me kind of thinking about law, or at least not. Don't no, do no, it. I don't want. Not that I want to go to law school, but like, is there any way <laughs> I knew you were about to say that? I've never, I've never met someone who's not a lawyer just be like, hey, law school is a good idea. No, even at Howard, a lot of the students like you can tell whether they're the first year or whatever. I think it's three years, right? Mm-hmm. three years yeah, yeah whether like the third year because people in third year are like this is not worth it i'm just finishing it because I'm, i've gotten so far like it's a sunk cost fallacy for most of the graduates it's really, mm-hmm. really but um like you think there's any because i i can very clearly tell that it seems like law school really helped you articulate yourself and like think strategically in debate people like at this point i'm glad i went but that's because i had this weird miracle thing happen to me where i wrote a couple articles for current affairs and suddenly i had a career in journalism that leveraged into all of this but the day before that article got published and i was a sad you know six-year associate with Mm. you know two hundred thousand dollars of debt and Mm. no way out yeah. I was wanting to die. <laughs> okay, well. She um, was depressed. <laughs> I, I believe it. I believe it. I mean, 200K, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. Jesus. Yes, I, sir. Like, like, I'm not interested in getting, like, that much into I just, is there, like, a way I could, like, maybe take a class or are there online classes? Are there any resources that you might be familiar, of, familiar with that could help with that type uh, of conversation? That's an interesting question. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just curious if you knew of anything because I like, don't know, man. Books are free and people yeah, do like, lectures and stuff. Like I was telling right. P- Professor Hansen used to have this, I don't know, maybe he still has this like situationist thing that's like a law and psychology like uh group panel something something like a like a 
workshop, I don't know, like a community. Community is the word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they might have stuff for free. I know that I've done several talks for his section that are all, he's, it's called, he's like a law and shit. It's called law and something blog. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he links to it. If you if you yeah, go to his Twitter, you'll find it. Yeah, no, I'll, um, I'll definitely check it out. Check uh, check all. But also, like books, like a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, John Hansen radicalized me, but also um, Thomas Frank reading "Listen Liberal" in 2016, and everything mm-hmm. that he was describing in the book was like happening in the election. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like that right. is people have written, you know, I'm telling people to read at this point is hilarious because we know how I feel about reading, but a lot of this stuff is in, is in the books. Right, right, right. I mean, I like, like, I'm not super, I guess, well experienced. I wouldn't consider myself super knowledgeable. Right. Uh, so like starting reading would be a great starting point. I feel, um, I was thinking of something like maybe MIT open courseware. Like I know so many people that learn how to, like I work in, as a software engineer, right? Mm-hmm. And like I, I know people who didn't even go to college, right? Mm-hmm. Or didn't even major in computer science who work there, and they're making like four hundred thousand dollars a year doing that. And it's like you know, it'd be nice to maybe study and understand law a, bit, a little bit better. Yeah, I see those men on the street TikToks where it's like, oh, how much is your rent? Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, and these people are always like, I'm a programmer. Um, I don't have any debt. I didn't have to go to school for it. And I make all this money. And I'm like, that's Yeah, no, no. It's, it's mad rare. It's mad rare. But I do like, they're, they're, they're competent at what they do. That's my point. Yeah. I'd like to. Well, look, I, I, I'm sure there is open stuff. I mean, the thing with the law is that there's, I mean, it's, it's all licensing and credentialing. So unless you live in California and you're Kim Kardashian, you can't just apprentice and then take the bar. You actually do have to go to law school. And, you know, oh, pass the bar and just, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in law school, please. No, no, no but I'm saying <laughs> because you still have to be credentialed to practice, there's not as much value in having open source materials. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know, like, yeah. what's the point if you can't make money, if you can't practice is, is I think, some oh, of the rationale for why you might have more open source yeah. computer stuff versus um, law stuff. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So but I'm sure there's some... stuff. I'm sure there's right. stuff. I mean, honestly, with some of these programmers out here, we might need some licensing too. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but also, I would say there's a lot of great legal podcasts. Another Section Sixer, um, sec, um, John Hansen was my Section Six professor. Mm-hmm. Um, was is Josie Duffy? She has a great. She's on several great legal podcasts. Was used to be at the Appeal, writing about criminal justice issues in particular. Um, Vanessa AB from Current Affairs Magazine for, previously, she just wrote a book called Homebound. She's a consumer debt and housing attorney. Right. Her um, but her memoir is terrific. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the law and how her kind of personal life experiences have led her to that discipline and some things, some inside baseball about what it's like to work in at the CFPB um, and elsewhere. You know, there's... There's a lot of people from this universe. This guy, um, another guy, I think he was a Section 6 or Jay... I was. I asked him to come on this episode, and he had a conflict and couldn't. Jay Willis at J A Y W I L I S on mm-hmm. Twitter is another great Section Sixer mm-hmm. um, who's been following these student debt cases very closely and doing some great tweeting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can read 
you know, even Ellie Mistel, I disagree with his politics sometimes, but he's got a good uh, legal analysis. He was previously, I think, editor-in-chief at Above the Law. Now he's an MSNBC correspondent. Like, you can read legal blogs, listen to legal podcasts. 5-4 is terrific for mm-hmm. Supreme Court news. You know, there's ways to get this information and become knowledgeable without being to, to law school. And I went to mm-hmm. law school and I didn't know half of what they were fucking talking about on that podcast. <laughs> no, no, I, I was like, Ooh, my brain is moving so much more slowly than their brains. Right. Now. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. you know what? It's like, I, I, I believe that's like a universal thing. Like you go to school and feel like you didn't learn shit. Whenever people are talking about what actually happens, like actually practicing what you went to school for. Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah. I feel that. Anyway, I really, really thank you for like the, this whole conversation. And this was really great. Uh, great interaction. And Thanks nice for calling in. First time caller. We stayed on for a little longer than I'd anticipated. And now I have to go and very quickly uh, close my rings. I have 100 movement calories left to burn today. So I got to just do a quick sprinted mile. Mm-hmm. But I have enjoyed your company, Ike. And I hope that you call back again sometime in the future. Definitely will. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. And cats and kittens, I'm going to play us out with a recommendation from one of our first callers. Uh, this is Depeche Mode, Strange Love. And why is this not playing? Oh, because I haven't turned the volume up. Keep the faith. Oh, and you guys are going to go ape shit over Monday's episode. So if you're not a subscriber, think about it. Strange love. Will you give it to me?